you listen to Watch Your Voyage, we have the one and only, the man that went up against the world's vaccine industry, in a sense, when it was an unfashionable thing to do, to say the least, and has his own vaccine company and has developed uh, vaccines across coronaviruses, swine flu vaccines, and I'm sure like probably hundreds, if not thousands of other ones in the experimental process, as well as things that have been deployed out in the world. You've also been a professor at Flinders University for many years. And um, I mean, I'm sure that's the tip of the iceberg of, of the lineage of your life. We have none other than Professor Nikolai Petrovsky. Welcome. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here. That's oh, good. good. I'm looking forward to, to hearing what questions you have and what you'd like to know and uh, sharing some insights, hopefully, with your audience. Yeah, well, look, I do have some spicy questions that right. I'm going to get to later. Um, I don't know if you heard the Joe Rogan episode with uh, RFK Jr. Of course. I mean, who would have missed it? All right. Well, I have some <laughs> questions in regards to that. Okay, all right. I yeah, want to go there, into it. I think and, most of it I was happy with. There are a few little bits, you know, obviously where the science wasn't quite right. Well, that's um, what I'm – because yeah. I'm – and just to kind of preface it, I am no, like, scholar of science myself. I'm just a man that wants to learn. And when it comes to scientific things and health-related things, I just want to live my life to the best of my ability, be as healthy as I can, and you know, overcome my vices as much as I can to be healthier. Um, and that's why I'm kind of interested in talking about vaccines, especially with you, and given that it's become such a big conversation over the last few years. But uh, I wrote down a few things in which RFK said, and I want you to kind of fact-check with me if you're comfortable okay. doing so. Yeah, no. I'll certainly call it out. I mean, science is about getting things correct um, and we shouldn't be scared of that. Sometimes science tells us we're doing the wrong thing. Again, we should own up and say, okay, <laughs> we got it wrong. We have to, to fix it. So, so, yeah, I think science is about truth. And so there's no good side to truth. There's no bad side to truth. The truth is simply the truth. So hopefully I can address that and there won't be any questions I won't be too scared to to answer because we shouldn't be scared of the truth. Yeah, well, I mean, it was quite interesting that people from like, I guess, spokesmen of the vaccine industry from the scientific establishment perspective weren't willing to go on Joe. So looks like you're, you, you'd be willing to go on Joe? Look, yeah, if I was, I think he did invite me a couple of years ago, um, right in the, the midst of the pandemic, but I was so busy developing the vaccine that, you know, and I, I didn't really know a lot about him at, at that point. I'd sort of just was aware he existed and that he, you know, he wasn't necessarily considered mainstream and he was a bit of a provocateur. Yep. Um, wasn't quite on and, your radar. And maybe at the time I, I myself was a little bit conservative and I know the media people at, I think at Flinders Uni, when I raised this, that I'd been invited, they're going, oh, you know, Fox, you know, it, you know, they had a group of, of media channels that, that they, they said were, were far too on the edge. Yeah, um, and he was Fox one of them. Fox was one of them. Um, Fox. Yeah, Fox News. They, you know, um, uh, and and him similarly, and and and, you know, I, I I probably regret having been influenced by that conservatism, which, um, you know, 
and unfortunately it does get in the way of the truth because I, I still believe you should be able to talk to anyone. doesn't mean you have to agree with their views. Mm. Um, in fact, if, if no one gets on with them and, and disagrees with them or corrects them, that, that's surely only going in the wrong direction. Like what, what I would love to do is go on and, and agree with him where he's right, where the science actually does support what he says, and, and, and correct him on those matters where he might have got it a, a bit wrong. And, right. and so I think it's our duty, if we're interested in the truth, to debate people who have different views to us. Whereas I, I think that this conservatism that's crept into society that says, you know, don't speak on any of these channels, they're, they're too, um, well, what they'd call extremist, actually makes those channels even more extremist because they never get someone from the other side on because they're not agreeing to. So, so yeah, in retrospect, uh, I would have um, enjoyed actually being interviewed by him and maybe the opportunity will come up in the future. Maybe. Who knows? This could be the catalyst. It'd be great. Yeah, be well, great. he might, uh, he he might, might watch this and go, oh, gee, <laughs> I knows? like this, this guy, you know. He seems to, to get uh, his head around some of the facts and not be scared of the facts. And I think, you know, that's... You know, when we talk about vaccines, it, it, there, there is a lot of um, sort of paternalistic and, mat and maternalistic attitude of um, public health figures. They're very protective of vaccines. Uh, but unfortunately, sometimes that protectiveness turns into what I would say verges on dishonesty. In other yeah, words, okay. they're, they're trying so hard to to say vaccines are, are wonderful and they're great and everyone should accept them, that sometimes they go too far and they actually deny problems that scientifically we know exist. And, and that, that's where I, I suddenly have a real problem. And they say, oh, Nick, you, know, you should stay silent even when we're maybe not telling the truth mm. because we think it's in everyone's interest. And I'm going, no. Yeah, it's like in the industry. No, there is no such thing that I'm aware where it's in everyone's interest um, to, to be misled or not to be told the truth, to, to be actually told mistruths. So I, I, that's a point I, I, just, I just find difficult. I understand where they're coming from, this very old school paternalistic maternalistic we know better and then they're the you know the masses uh, are not sufficiently educated to understand so the only way we can get them to behave the way we think they should is we have to trick them or we have to lie to them or we have to mislead them so so it's not that they're not in their own heads doing it for a better better cause but I just can't see how you can justify that because it, it simply isn't true. Just, just because, you know, we've trained in science, you know, for 20, 30 years doesn't mean that you don't have amateur scientists, people who just read a lot um, and that sometimes they might know more than the person who's actually called the scientist. So, so we, 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 we have to be really careful we don't judge people. Fair enough. Well, that's a, that's a great preface for Hopefully some okay. questions you'll be able to answer. Um, but one of the things that I got from that podcast was that this is US, and tell me if this extends to Australia, and I'm sure you'd know kind of world policy around this, that Reagan and the Democrats passed the Vaccine Act in 1986, making negligence the ingredients used 
um, and essentially gave full indemnity for downstream liabilities, removing the incentive to make vaccines safe? Look, yeah. Um, again, um, that you, you have to put that all into context. So what happened back then um, was that vaccines had become commodities. So in other words, you know, the price of vaccines was getting down to a dollar a dose, 50 cents a dose. So the companies that were making those vaccines um, that were being used in, you know, um, all the children um, got to a point where their factories were at the end of their lives. You know, they'd been running for 20, 30 years. And so they were progressively shutting those factories and they weren't building new ones because they couldn't because there, there simply wasn't enough profit in the products they were selling. So, Why wasn't so, there enough profit? Well, because the price was a dollar a dose. And was that government forced for the price to be low? Or was yeah, it because because up till then, and again, they're changing views, but um, you know, there was a view that the demand for vaccines in the world was very large, and groups like the Gates Foundation said, we want to drive the price of vaccines down to ridiculously low levels because that, that should mean that everyone in the world can get access to them. But, you know, it backfired. Because rather than giving more people access, what it did is made vaccines unprofitable. Mm. So, so basically the vaccine industry in the US collapsed because as each factory came to the end of its life, it was shut. And so suddenly they had no vaccines. So they, they started importing them from other countries. Um, but, you know, the, in order to try and turn that around, um, one of the arguments that the vaccine manufacturers had said was, well, not only are we selling these vaccines at a very low cost, it's not really profitable. But if something goes wrong, if, if, if you know, a mother claims that this vaccine has caused harm to, to her child and, you know, she, she sues us and, and we have to pay a $10 million payout, you know, which in the US is unfortunately not uncommon or a hundred million dollar payout, um, regardless of, of the science or the merit, because again, you know, a lot of these things are, are, are arbitrary often. It's hard to prove that this caused that. In the US courts will sometimes say, well, we don't care, we're going to give you the damages anyway. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so they said, so just one lawsuit like that means that the tiny bit of profit we, we, we're hoping to make uh, that justifies us staying in business will disappear. Um, so we'll only continue to supply vaccines in the US if the government take on the risk aspect of us getting sued. So it wasn't, it wasn't as it, it's commonly put that, that this was somehow trying to, you know, save the companies from, um, from lawsuits or, or was designed to to cover up the fact vaccines were unsafe. I mean, all vaccines, unfortunately, do have rare side effects. That's a given, just like all drugs do. So, so what the, the industry was saying, these events are going to happen. Might be one in a million or one in 10 million, but they will happen and they, that, will, that will cost us more than we're making from, from selling the hundreds of millions of doses. So, you know, either you have to push the price up and the government will have to pay Fifty or a hundred dollars a dose for the vaccines, which you can imagine the government wasn't very keen to do, mm. or the government has to take away some of this risk from us. And so, did they 
disable claims being able to be made for injuries of of all sorts and just kind of nobody was able to do anything about it and there was just like basic schemes to support people or well, was it that they could those claims that would result in those millions of yeah. dollars uh, getting from the vaccine industry then being paid out by the government to those people yeah, so well, it's somewhere in between the the two, as I understand. So, so essentially, the government took over the responsibility for compensation. But like most governments, when they compensate, um, they have power to legislate to mm. cap yep. all of that. Uh. Um, you know, so whereas yep. a company, you know, if someone sues them for a hundred million and they lose, they just have to pay the hundred million. Yep. The government can bring in a compensation scheme and say, you know, the maximum payout is you know, $100,000. Um, so so that's where when the government take it over, yeah, it's not a free-for-all. Mm. The governments are smart enough to say, look, you know, this could be uh, quite expensive. And so they will then um, put various caps and constraints on who can get compensation. Um, it, the, the advantage is typically the government will say um, you don't have to prove it in a court of law. So more people will get compensation they just have to put a reasonable case forward often to a committee or a panel so it doesn't go into a massive legal court action um, which has its own problems of course so but the the consequence is we'll pay out more but the the amount each person gets will be much less you know and um, so so and, and we have similar schemes in Australia and a lot of countries around the world have those schemes but yeah, okay. I, I think it's wrong to to suggest that it was done as a cover-up. Yeah, as like nefarious it, it, intent. It, but no, it, was it good wasn't intent at all. It was very good to intent. To address a problem. Yeah. Um, and then it could have potentially, depending on what the truth of the matter is, if it's, you know, if vaccines are great and everything we want them to be and all the products have been great, um, then it's like, okay, it's worked. But if they're not good, then it's a road to hell has been paved with good intentions kind of idea. Look, every yeah. Look, I, yeah, no, I don't yeah know. that's but true. That's of every I'm asking po- you, it's like right? every policy. Yeah, oh, has, yeah has, has, You know, <laughs> there's always things that happen. You go, gee, that we, you know. Um, so, and just to yeah, quote another yeah. one of the things yeah. that he said, he said that in 1977, the McGinley and McGinley uh, study found that it was less than one percent decline in death could be attributed to vaccines. Um, and he said that as like a counterpoint to the uh, 2000 CDC and John Hopkins Institute Gaia study, which uh, went, he said went through the history of vaccines and health claims um, and showed the huge decline in mortalities from infectious diseases was in fact an 80% drop. And what caused that? Was it vaccines? And it was no, that they found it had almost nothing to do with vaccines and everything to do with refrigeration for food, transportation systems, roads, housing, sanit- uh, like uh, yeah. sanitation, sanitation, nutrition, yeah. and sewage treatment, chlorine, and the real cause of, of the historic deaths was more to do with malnutrition um, as like the leading cause rather than people dying from those diseases as the, the front end cause. Again, um, <laughs> if you you need to pull it apart, 
Please. Um, so, so certainly, you know, over the last hundred years, improved nutrition, um, you know, uh, health care um, has, has, you know, um, dramatically reduced like childhood mortality, you know. Um, vaccines certainly have played a role and a complementary role. I don't think you can um, be so black and white and and again when people do these analyses they they have to make a whole lot of assumptions um though because generally you can't actually tease it out how do you separate out improving living standards from the introduction of vaccines because these things were generally happening at the same time in combination Mm. so so you know you can't do a control study where you say we're going to leave this half of the children malnourished um and prove and, see what happens, and yeah. prove that you know even if they get vaccinated that that they they are going to still do badly and and conversely that the healthy children who are not vaccinated do well so you, you can't do a placebo controlled and, and study was the timeline of effects like side by side well again yeah a lot of these ha- things happened you know over the same decades yeah, um okay. you know because they they they, they um they're not discontinuous. It's not like living standards went from bad to good overnight. You know, they happened over many decades. Um, introduction of vaccines similarly happened over many decades, you know, where, where various vaccines were both introduced um, because, you know, about every 20 or 30 years, a new vaccine might get developed over the last 100, 200 years. And, you know, initially it might just be given to a small subset of the population and then progressively that would expand. So, so it's not like there's a, a cutoff point. You say, yeah, you know, we had no vaccines here and we had vaccines here and this is what happened. So, so because of that, you have to be very careful when you look at these analyses. You can't say it was this or it was that. But I would say in, in to, to present the good side of vaccines, if you go to, say, a country like Cuba, right, very poor, um, extremely poor, in fact, but, but um, they are very passionate about their vaccines. They make all their own vaccines because they can't afford Western vaccines. What kind of vaccines? Um, so, well, the first um, major one that they made was a hepatitis B vaccine. Um, and so they rolled that out through Cuba. Um, and they're very proud of the fact they have eradicated, um, essentially, you know, the transmission of hepatitis B in Cuba. And they have the data showing from the date of rollout of the vaccine, the number of cases, because again, they have great data, they collect data from the whole population. Mm. Um, and they can show, you know, this is the time at which we extinguished hepatitis B, um, the last case sort of thing, um, thanks to this vaccine. Now, they now actually provide that vaccine, I think, to 50 different developing world countries as a consequence, you know. So, there you go. So, so to, to sort of, again, lump all vaccines in a single basket and, and dismiss them and say they haven't had an impact, it simply isn't true. Um, vaccines yeah, have well, had a very Yeah, I don't think that's big... what he's saying. Well, again, he, well, he saying. is in a way. He's saying, oh, it's overstated the benefit that those benefits were going to come from better nutrition anyway and better health care. That, that, to be honest, um, there is an element of that but it, it, it would be, I think, very unreasonable. And, and again, there's been a lot of studies done that, that claim the opposite, that if you look at the rollout of the vaccine, you can show a mortality benefit flowing from that. So yeah, okay. it's always difficult because, again, there's a lot of reasons people are dying. Mm. Um, 
And, and so it takes, you know, 10 or 20 years often after you roll out a vaccine to be able to look back and say, all right, what, what did this vaccine achieve? It's not something you can necessarily measure, like, you know, instantaneously. But so, Fair enough, so, as so, we saw in COVID. <laughs> well, again, COVID has been, yeah, it's, it's, it's a basket case. Yes. If, if, a, to, be, to be frank, put it because lightly. everything that was done, including in the vaccine space, broke all the rules. And I think some of those rules were good rules that we developed over many decades um, and principles about how to manage vaccine policy. And, and they were all just ripped up and thrown away. And, uh, and we had politicians and various people, you know, making decisions and creating new rule books and, and not having, you know, I, I guess um, those decisions reviewed by the people like myself who'd been in the industry doing this work yeah, for the bureaucrats. last 30 or 40 years. So, so unfortunately, that all happened in the context of a pandemic where they argued that there wasn't time to get expert opinion. There wasn't time to review things. Well, you know, again, that's not necessarily true. Um, yeah, and, and, obviously and I that's... think we did have much more time than was made out. Yeah, fair. And especially in Australia, because we were locked down, right? Yeah. Um, in exactly. Terms of our block, yeah, yeah our exactly. We had, we had effectively no transmission. Yeah. So yeah. we had lots of time to think about it. I was shocked when, you know, after having a year and a half or so to think about it, um, they then acted as if they hadn't thought about it at all with a lot of the implementation and of I, the vaccine. I want to get into COVID more a bit later. Yeah. I want to just go yeah. through all these first. Sure. No, no, I absolutely. genuinely. Um, you know, obviously makes you question when you hear someone put together an argument and it seems reasonable and they're saying they have a lot of evidence and they come from, you know, good background to be able to be as biased as they can be. You know, you go, huh. So I, I trust that you, you know, you're obviously. Well, again, I, I'm, 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 <laughs> you know, you I'm, know I'm happy to. Like, have you know, read these studies? Have what? you seen these studies? Yeah, that I have, he talks I have about? seen these studies. And again, you know, they're studies and they're studies. If you, you have to be so careful, you don't cherry pick. And we, yeah. I, I see this in both sides. You know, I've been in a recent court case where we were looking at all the data um, for the COVID vaccines and the data again. And they, you know, the, to be honest, the government had just cherry picked or their advisors only the papers that supported their argument and, and they were oblivious to an enormous amount of literature that said that, in fact, the complete opposite. So, so with science, if you go looking for something to support your argument, you'll always find it. Because the great thing about science is it has all perspectives. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that is not how you do good science. So good science is you have to be balanced you have to take into account all papers, all perspectives, and then try to integrate that together. And then based on that, make a decision, well, is, is, is one view more likely to be correct than the other? But this idea that, you know, you can go and get papers to support, say, an anti-vaccine stance, yeah, you, you, you'll find them. Mm. Are they correct? Are, are they, you know, um, being overlooked or is it that there's a much bigger body of, of, of data that, that actually sort of suggests that those papers are maybe not necessarily as accurate or that they're missing certain important facts? So, 
So it's really important to have balance. And I, th I think the reason I started speaking out is when I saw so much imbalance happening bo on both sides. Mm. So you could argue, yes, he's, he does have a tendency to be quoting only papers that are, you know, favourable to his arguments, which I think are, are only selective. But I equally have seen, you know, uh, vaccine lobbyists doing exactly the same thing, only quoting, you know, papers that show enormous benefits and ignoring the others. So somehow we need more people like me who are happy to just speak call the truth, spade a spade, call yeah. a spade a spade and, and admit that it's, it, there's no absolutes in, in this. Mm. You know, it, 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 it's, it's, it's complex and there are pros and cons. And, you know, there's risk. And so this should all be about, you know, risk management and, and assessing benefit versus risk. And when you think about vaccines in terms of risk and benefit, um, you should never get it wrong mm. because you should always be looking for situations where the benefits clearly are greater than the risks. In that case, that's where you should be putting your efforts. But if you find that there's a situation where the risks potentially outweigh the benefits, and I think that's what he was alluding to, mm. then, then, yeah, we should pull the vaccine that's, that's involved or, or restrict its use to only those people in which we can clearly show a benefit. And I think during COVID, again, that's got so far out of whack, yeah. that risk-benefit discussion. They're not absolutely, you know, to say, you know, they're safe and effective is, is scientifically rubbish, mm. right? Yeah. But to say that they're completely unsafe and completely ineffective is equally scientific rubbish. What we have to find is that middle ground that is the truth. Yeah, like who's and, it good and, for? And, and I can't find anyone who's interested in talking about the truth here. Like, because they're either on this side of the room or on that side of the room and some of us, just a few of us, are sitting there who have probably the most knowledge in the field, sitting there in the middle, just going, what the hell's going on here? Thank like you. everyone seems to hate us because we're actually trying to talk about the real science that, you know, of, of vaccines. Come the on, truth. man. They got politics to push. <laughs> no, that's right. And so you get you get start getting abused from both sides, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, it's insane. Yeah. Um, okay, so what I guess when we're talking about safe effective and looking at science and the studies and making sure we have well-balanced studies um, the double blind is seen as like the gold standard of studies where does double blind testing in the vaccine world take place so well normally that's done as part of what we call the phase three programs you know very large groups of individuals where they are randomized um, and they're blinded to their treatments so a half get you know a placebo which is um, you know, basically nothing and, mm. and the other half get the vaccine and they don't know which one they've had. Um, and in that situation, you can measure the side effects, obviously, in the people who've had it and haven't had it. Um, and similarly, you can measure the um, effectiveness in those who've had it and haven't had it. Um, and that allows you to do your risk-benefit analysis. Yeah, okay. And does that risk-benefit analysis of the double-blind happen for all vaccines that get administered? Let's just use kids as an example because obviously I think most people are having this questioning about do I want to give it to my kids? It started with three and now it's 70 or however many it is. I don't have kids. 
don't know. I just got what I got. <laughs> didn't probably remember it. Yeah, yeah, didn't it's remember it. It's a lot. Um, so yeah, are they all go through double blind studies and are they at adequate time periods? And yeah, what's what's the world of what's going on? Yeah, so um, traditionally, and so we, so if we go back pre-pandemic, because it really is a very different um, what's been happening in the last three years. But if we go back prior to that. Um, you know, the vaccine industry was very conservative and the regulators, which we call the TGA or in the US is the FDA, who have to approve it, were very conservative because you're going to be giving vaccines to hundreds of millions, if not billions of people. So, you know, the idea was that it had to be unbelievably safe. You had to prove basically that, you know, it wasn't going to hurt more than one in a million people. Um, because when you're giving it, say, to a billion and you hurt one in a million, that's still a thousand people who are hurt by the vaccine. So, so, so they, they had very stringent criteria. And you had to do trials, not just one, but multiple, often in tens of thousands of, of children or depending on the age group you're giving the vaccine. Um, and that might have to, those, those trials might have to go on for years, um, not just for months. Um, collecting data, um, still watching what's happening in those two groups. So it was incredibly stringent and incredibly difficult, actually, to get a vaccine approved. It typically took about 20 years collecting that data before everyone was convinced that it was sufficiently safe and effective to to actually roll it out. Yeah, okay. So, so if you're talking, you know, your childhood vaccines like hepatitis B or um, you know, pertussis, um, you know, tetanus, all of these, measles, bumps, rubella, then, you know, generally, particularly the ones that have been developed in the last 30 or 40 years, have gone through incredibly rigorous testing. If you talk about vaccines that have been used for 100 years, well, you know, we can't speak to, to what they went through, but the, then we have the real-world experience with those vaccines in billions of children. Yeah, over the last you know fifty hundred years. So, mm -hmm. so we've collected the data in maybe a different way. But these days, as I say, typically you do it in these very specific controlled studies. That changed obviously with COVID. Yeah, well, one of the things that through just the COVID conversations that took place was, um, I guess, showing how the, I'd say, the pharmaceutical industry at large has the ability to. Uh, pluck out anomalies, anomalies in studies that might have adverse reactions to whatever the drug is or the vaccine uh, at the start of the trial, if they have that at the very start. Is that, does, is that ring true from what you've seen um, being in the industry? Again, you know, it's important not to make generalizations. So normally none of these things would happen because the system is, is designed normally to be very protective of, of you know, the community, of individuals. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, so there are a lot of hoops you have to jump through. Um, uh, some people would argue too many, you know, that it, because it was costing billions to develop a new vaccine and, you know, it was taking 20 years. So, so you know, People were saying we're not getting these vaccines through, you know, um, easily enough. Um, 
with COVID, you know, that, that equation was, was, was somewhat, was flipped because of the perceived urgency um, that, you know, basically, as I say, that rule book was just thrown out. Yeah. Um, you know, we had trials that were initially started with the phase threes. Um, you know, they, they did what we call an interim analysis, which is not normal, but um, because they wanted some, you know, quick access, are they doing something or not? Um, you know, they, they the, the initial trials, um, you know, uh, particularly the mRNA, analysed the data after two months. Now, normally, you know, we'd be doing our first analysis maybe after two years, right? Because there's no, like, like yeah, when yeah, yeah. The, the, the safety is all important. And so the regulator in the old days would say, look, I don't care how long this takes, right? You have to convince me that there is both no short-term side effects that are, uh, are a worry but also no long-term side effects or worry. So if that means it takes 5, 10, 15, 20 years to get there, I, I don't care that the industry is suffering and then, you know, this, this may not be profitable. That's what we're going to do. With, mm. with COVID under the cover of the emergency, all those normal rules were thrown out. And that to us was very scary because all those rules were put in for good reason. You know, there have been issues in the past with things going wrong with vaccines. Again, we shouldn't shy away from that. Um, I'm sure RFK would remind <laughs> us of some of those, yep. you know, episodes um, where things did go wrong and uh, safety issues emerged and vaccines had to be pulled off the market. So yeah, well, I think the, the, the historical one that he referred to in the Rogan episode was all about the mercury. Well, that's, that's not real. That's something a, a, a different because that's, that's what we call a theoretical problem. So there's no proof one way or the other that mercury actually w has caused any harm, right? Okay, there's well, no proof. But, okay. but, but no, the, 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 I guess the situations are like um, back in the, the 70s, there was an influenza pandemic. Uh, and similarly, they rolled out a vaccine very rapidly and it mm. caused a problem called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a, an autoimmune um, paralysis. And they, they had about 10 or 15 of these cases in the US when they rolled out this, this flu vaccine that was you know, clearly associated with the vaccine and they, they had to pull it um, because, in fact, it turned out that flu wasn't that serious. Now, you could say that somewhat reminiscent of COVID, that a bit the same sort of scenario yeah, where, like rush, rush, where rush. there's rush, 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 and, and you, know, you can understand that in that very early stage before you know how serious the disease is. Because, you know, there, I think there was a perception this is killing everyone. Oh, look, I was freaking um, out at the start. You know, you know uh, like, what's the bug out plan, guys? Yeah, so, so, so yes, at that point, I think it is good to, to push development forward. Um, mm, but like R&D development. But that's R&D and clinical trials. Most of us had the view that what should have then happened, which didn't, was that, you know, within a few months of the start of the pandemic, um, well before the vaccines came on the market, like about a year before, in fact, um, you know, we realised that, yes, there were lots of people dying and they were all over 80 years of age. Yes, right. Well, that was 90%, especially Italy, right? 90% of everyone who was dying um, was, you know, extremely elderly and they often had diabetes and heart disease and other problems, right? So, so they were a high-risk group. So that meant that 
you know, in terms of rolling a vaccine out early, in other words, you're going to you're going to accept there's there's a big risk because we haven't fully developed this, we haven't fully tested it. That was the truth. Whatever they say about this being normally tested and having gone through the normal processes is completely false. All right. It's not possible mm. <laughs> in the space of six months. No. Right. There's to no, do any of do the normal term, testing, right? right? None no of thing it. The animal term. testing hadn't been done. The human long-term human testing hadn't been done. There wasn't any time. Mm. So you had what you might consider, you know, some early data showing there was some benefit, right, in terms of reducing the risk of infection. We thought, as people inside the industry, oh, all right, you know, we know this is still a risky product. It hasn't yet completed all the normal testing. But there are people like over 80 where if they get COVID, they probably one in three of them are going to die from it. Yeah. Right? Okay. It was around 25 to 30%. For really old people. For really old people. Yeah. You That's look at huge. the nursing homes. That's huge. It, it was wiping out, you yeah. know, a third of the population of Australian nursing homes. So, so the obvious thing to do is to say the benefit in those people of a, a is, vaccine is massive. Yeah, yeah. Even if that vaccine has serious side effects. Yeah. Okay. Right? Even if it might, you know, dare I say it, result in the death of a few of those people, it will save more people mm. than it will harm. So this is all risk benefit. So, yeah, and not so, at like a, a 49, 51, but a, a significant, more significant than that in terms of what it would save to what it would kill. Well, it, it has it, yeah. one has to outweigh the other. Yeah. So, you know, does it matter if it, if it, you know, again, in, in, you put it in context of a cancer drug. Yes. Right? Cancer drugs are highly toxic and they, they kill a lot of the people who receive. If you've seen anyone on chemotherapy, they're effectively taking mm. them close to death and some will go to death as a consequence. But, you know, if, if that cancer drug stops one person out of 10, their cancer progressing, no one cares about the fact that has killed 30% of the people taking it. So, so when we talk about these extreme cases, yeah, in the elderly, you could justify a highly dangerous vaccine uh, would still potentially be more beneficial than, than mm. causing harm. And you could justify... You're probably on voluntary, voluntary means. Right, absolutely, I and, and the, I well, that's you know, probably the everything preface. I preface yeah. in in modern medicine. We were taught after Nuremberg, and you know, certain you know, a group of people were hanged for having tested medical therapies on people without their consent, and that was the whole principle of informed consent mm. that you cannot and should never force a medical treatment on another human against their will, you especially know, the Nazi ones, because. I heard about the dry ice of the arm and then they hit it with the hammer like while they're alive and standing there like, oh. Yeah, so, but, 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 you know, so, so that's where the modern principles of informed consent came from was the, the essentially the Nuremberg trials. Mm. Um, and as I say, people were executed for having breached what was, was, wasn't legislated or wasn't encapsulated in law at the time they did it, but they retrospectively said, you know, they should have formed followed a, such a code and yeah, even like, though they weren't aware of it we're yeah. going to execute them anyway so yeah, just the value so it was of a very human life. it was really to demonstrate to the world that this is unacceptable but we're now back in the same scenario and we're being told it's acceptable all of a sudden to to force and mandate um you know experimental treatments on people 
Um, yes. it, that that is a serious mm. concern that hasn't been properly addressed. Is, no. is how can that be justified? I don't believe it can. And I think again, a lot of governments and a lot of health departments have lost the plot. Yeah, well, and, I want to and go for, into and, and and really forgotten, you know, where we've been and why we developed all these things, you know, like the Nuremberg Code and you know the principles of informed consent, you know, the principle that you can't force someone to take an experimental treatment, you know. They seem to have forgotten all of that in in their desire to to madly, you know, push these things out. And then you have to ask why. Do they believe that this is a a public health crisis, or or do they have other you know motives for doing so? Yeah, is it the Georgia Guidestones playing out? That's the question. That's the real question. Well, <laughs> you know, knows? again, I think you know, you, you probably different reasons in different places, and a lot of people just following the lead. I think you know, we we had a lot of this coming from um, you know large organisations, sort of saying these, you know, it's a good thing mm. um, to have mandates and passports, and you know. Um, and you know, I think a lot of countries just the politicians just blindly followed the lead. Um, mm. Probably didn't even think about what they were doing. And I think the ones that actually didn't strictly follow the lead, countries like Sweden, got really berated. attacked and yeah. berated. Um, it turns out unfairly because again, the data is the data. I mean, Sweden. If you look at the overall mortality rates in Sweden, they're much less than the rest of Europe. They didn't bring in a lot of these draconian sort of rules. Um, so how did they compare to our, us per capita? Because obviously we are an island. We had nobody else come in pretty much. We, you know, confined to our cities pretty much or to our states um, for a good time there. How did we compare to Sweden? So um, we, I think we're still favourable relative to Sweden because of that long period um, where where we had no infection at all, whereas they were tolerating, um, you know, the infection. Um, and in fact, again, taking a, a principle that um, they wanted the young people to, to get infected in effect, because that would build up natural immunity mm. while, while vaccinating the elderly who were the, the, the more at risk. Um, so that, that was sort of their uh, approach. I think Australia is, as in terms of deaths has caught up because, but where Australia was was really very lucky, and it really was a fluke, um, with a lucky country for good reason. Um, Being isolated is well. One, we're isolated, and we were able to eradicate the virus pretty well um, from the population for for most of that first year until there was a political decision to open up. Uh, and, and then we're open on Omicron our by then, and, and, it wasn't and as that bad. was right. It was almost like it's almost like they were predicting it because. They opened the borders. Delta started to expand, and and it would have been catastrophic, in truth. But Omicron came in like the next week and just totally took over, and obviously was much milder. Mm. Um, and that that really was, I think, just a a complete fluke and very fortuitous, because I think if Delta had gone through the whole Australian population, um, irrespective of the vac the vaccination rates. Yeah, well, it we would have seen a much higher death rate because the vaccine wasn't made for Delta, right? And what was the effectiveness of the vax, or is, I guess, the vaccine to the Delta strain? 
So it's actually um, not too bad against Delta. So um, the, it, it dropped, certainly dropped from the original strains um, so to the Delta. The original so strain was, was it 96%? Well, that, that was, as, I mean, again, um, yeah, then this is where, you know, we have to be factual. Um, so against the original strain, you, you ranged from like around 50% protection, um, 50 to 60% from AstraZeneca. Mm-hmm. Which which a lot of people in Australia, particularly the elderly, had. Yes, and that was against the original strain. It was worse again against. And elders. that's just so death, that, right? that that was AstraZeneca. So that was a a viral vector vaccine. And then uh, you know the mRNA vaccines clearly did a lot better than that, um, particularly in those first few months when they were measuring it. Because you have to remember they stopped measuring it um, after they got that first result, which again scandalised a lot of us. They actually dismantled the placebo groups in the, the phase three trials because they vaccinated them all. One dose or two dose or three dose or four dose or five dose because we're up to five doses yeah. now in the So community. no, but we're just talking going back to the, the clinical trials in the original strains. Yeah, this so is two that's doses. what I'm asking. Oh, okay, two so doses is, in yeah, the original Two doses trial. was the original idea. That, yeah. Um, you know, WHO actually are telling us that, you know, if it wasn't one dose and effective for life, then they weren't interested. <laughs> how wrong they twist, were twist my you know, arm <laughs> you know, like, they, but, but it's fascinating because that was their view at the before yeah. the vaccines were rolled out you should if you know what you're doing have us be able to give a single dose and and give people long-term protection so that and didn't is that, that didn't that, work i mean i like that idea right that's yeah and johnson and johnson idea. developed a, a similar version to astrazeneca uh in the u.s and it's just one dose mm. only trouble is didn't work. Did bugger all. For long and, and then it was all. taken off the market. Okay. And, so and disappeared. So AstraZeneca was at the bottom end. Mm-hmm. 50 um, to 60 to stop yeah. death. Um, or to stop hospi- no, hospital. No, well, again, there's a lot of misinformation about the trials. So because the trials were largely done in younger people, because initially you, you tend to do your trials in younger people and then as you get data, extend it to more frail people. Mm. So a lot of the people in the trials were younger. Those people were at very low risk of hospitalization or death from COVID. So what, the trials were not powered statistically to actually show any effect on severe disease or death, right? There are a lot of claims made afterwards which statistically are meaningless. And, and again, in science, we have this thing called a p-value, you know, the statistical significance. And it, you can show a difference, but if that different difference is not statistically significant, a scientist can't say this number is bigger than this number unless they can show it, it is statistically different. And it didn't have um, the statistical and it, and that significance. And none of the trials had any power to, to even show statistical significance, let alone calculate it, right? So when they say, you know, oh, the AstraZeneca was 90% effective against preventing severe disease and death, you know, in its phase three trial. Statistically, that is complete misinformation. You know, there were nine cases versus one cases, p-value 0.3, 0.4. Basically, scientifically, you cannot claim there was any benefit. I know to a lay person, they'll go, but yeah, but Nine versus one, that's nine times higher. Mm. But, you know, if we talk in science, if we're doing this properly, <laughs> right, there are rules and you have to follow the rules. So none of the trials 
actually statistically validly showed any benefit in terms of severe disease or death. So the only thing they could measure in those trials was what we call symptomatic disease. So this was by and large people who were getting mild infections and were show, being shown by PCR to be infected. And that was what was reduced 90% in the mRNA studies. And Basically PCR, mild disease that went from PCR positive to PCR negative. In and other didn't, words, have the P, didn't the PCRs have fundamental error with them themselves as the creator or the inventor of the PCR test came out and said that they're not meant to be used for this function? So, yeah, I mean, there, there were a number of problems with the, the PCR test. Um, the first is that the, the FDA um, and CDC in the US um, decided that only the CDC um, PCR test was allowed to be used by every hospital and laboratory in the whole United States. And it turned out that test was completely defective and didn't work. And so you had these labs and like our, even our lab, like developing our own PCRs. And in Australia, we were allowed to do that and they were all working. And, you know, you'd soon see if one wasn't working because someone else would have one that was working. They'd give different results and you'd quickly. But because in the US, they weren't allowed by law to do anything other than use the CDC test. And the CDC test, as it turned out, was completely defective meant that all PCR testing in the whole United States was just complete rubbish. Mm. It was meaningless. Because isn't it the rapid that, antigen? That took, took you know, a long time for that to be appreciated and, and for that to be fixed. So, so they had a particular problem with PCR in the US, which so how was RFK ours different? might refer to. How was ours different then? So, so anyone can make a PCR test. It's a very simple thing to do, yeah. to design a PCR to detect. To, to um, viral DNA or mm. viral RNA. Um, so, so typically there's not one test. You know, different labs will develop their own test and they'll test it out and show it's working. The, 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 the common problem in PCRs, all PCRs, right? The technology. Is, well, yeah. the technology, right, is an amplification technology. Mm. So, so it's very sensitive. So the more what we call cycles you do, so each cycle, when we talk about a cycle, it's an amplification. So imagine each cycle in a PCR amplifies the signal a thousand times. So we do one cycle, we amplify the signal a thousand times. Do two cycles, it's now a million times. Do three cycles, it's now a, a trillion. So it's compounded. Right, right. Yeah. No, yeah, but, but, but and we've started from a very small base. So if there's a tiny error or problem or, or contaminant, in that starting material, and we now take it to 35 cycles, right? That's the extreme nonsensical end of PCR. That is like and what were we if doing? there was one molecule in the room, right, of DNA that just happened to float in, that would now show up positive. And what were and we doing? And in the How US, they were accepting PCRs with cycles of 35 cycles. It, it was completely nonsensical. So very early on in Australia, they said, look, if it's not positive at 25 cycles, forget it. Wasn't 25 still very high? 25 is still high. I mean, um, again, you're taking a small amount of genetic material because when you swab a nose, maybe you know, there's 10 or 20 virus particles. So, so it is an advantage that you, you have this amplification. 
but but the more you amplify, the more you're amplifying just noise, yeah, error. and turning yeah. it into a signal. And so 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 you're right. Yes, the less cycles, the better. The more likely a positive is to be a true positive. And certainly, once you go beyond 25 cycles, and this is where I think you know the people who invented the original PCR are going, this is madness. You know yeah, what I mean? Okay. Yeah, this yeah. is not designed for this purpose. Okay. Especially when you're just doing this, you know, outside in the rain or you're swabbing people, you know, yeah, going in, in a big line, settings. you know, where you're not, yeah, you know, where you're not able to control. And so there probably is a bit of cross-contamination going on and everything. With PCR, any cross-contamination is going to cause massive problems. And with so, driving through the car and having wind blowing and all sorts, you could easily exactly. have yeah, something no. get in there. Okay, no. and then it'll be a false Or positive. someone coughs, you know, three cars down. And and, and 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 that, 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 that and you know, and you, all you need is one virion to land uh, on, on the swab. And, uh, and was and, that and, the same with the... The Australian twenty at twenty five cycles that would be a similar scenario. No, so twenty five in PCR is is you know you, you between twenty and twenty five cycles is 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 normal in, in for a PCR. So it's it's in the range that it hasn't it has it doesn't become completely crazy. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah okay. Um, all right. So, so yeah, I think in Australia, one we allowed different labs to develop them. There wasn't just a single one, um, so you could even run it on two different ones and compare them. Um, that's a good way to tell if one's positive, one's negative. You know, there's a problem. But they also early on recognised because we weren't being dictated to by the CDC, who were telling everyone they had to do it a particular way and run it for X number of cycles uh, with with defective material to start with. Um, so, so, so there was more freedom here, and fortunately, that freedom actually meant we got on top of that. So, PCRs in Australia were, I think, overall, I can't speak for all of them, but I think the ones that got ex- adopted actually are, are, are very solid and and are still being used, you know, to this day. So, so I think that's why I'm saying the PCR problem was a really a massive problem in the US. Yeah, okay, it's an American issue, not necessarily an Australian issue. But it is fascinating because I think people just, you know, it, it, these are things it's easy to get wrong, particularly yeah, for, sure. for a lay person. Like, I don't know the difference between 35 yeah. cycles and 25 yeah. cycles or 20 cycles. I don't even know yeah. what these cycles mean. Yeah. I, but basically, no each, each, each round is, is. Is, is an amplification. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. And it's a bit like when you get feedback in a like microphone, you know, that that's, you just get insane amplification. I do know a bit more about that. Yeah. Um, okay. So I just want to jump back to some of this. Yeah. Uh, RFK yeah. stuff and and touch into that bit about Mercury. Mm. So, what he said was that Eli Lilly in 1932 found in his study that Mercury leaves the body quickly. And then in 2003, the Picciero CDC study showed that Mercury on a tuna sandwich stayed in the kids for 64 days or two months. Um, and then when it was injected with that uh, mercury in a vaccine that it disappeared from the blood in a week, but it was not found in the excrement, the sweat, the hair, the nails. It wasn't being able to found anywhere. And then that Thomas uh, Burbacker from Seattle did a study with monkeys and was able to kill the monkeys and you know, do the autopsy and found that the mercury went away in a week but during the postmortem, it hadn't left their body 
the ethyl mercury went past the blood-brain barrier and lodged itself in there, causing severe inflammation. So there's a lot in you know to to dissect again there. I mean, the first thing he he said that was actually incorrect is that that it was put in as an adjuvant. My my whole background is a, as an adjuvant developer, and I can tell you it wasn't put in there as an adjuvant. It was put in as a preservative, and so. Um, the 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 reason it was in there um, was was to stop bacteria growing in the vaccine vial. So so it was a problem back in the the bad old days, um, you know. And we're talking here in in Australia, in particularly like the sixties and seventies, um, sort of post Second World War. Um, you know, they they put vaccines into multi-dose vials so in other words like you know the nurse could pull out a dose and jab this child and then pull out another dose from the same vial and jab the next child and so on so because because they they you know it was it was cheaper to do it that way um you know it's just you more just efficient put it in were, a different syringe and keep going yeah well well, well essentially yeah they would just draw it up out of a like a big bottle. Oh yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, right, yeah. Um, and and so you know when you're doing that, each time you're penetrating that, you know, vial, you're potentially putting you know bacteria or fungi from the air into the vial, so that once a vial is punctured the first time, you can't guarantee it's sterile, even if it was sterile up to that point. And sterility in vaccines, because we're injecting them, is absolutely essential, right? So we've put a lot of work into that but with a multi-dose vial because they're going into it repeatedly um, you can't guarantee sterility so they had to put a, a preservative in there um, that would would stop any bacteria or fungi growing in that vial while while they were using it so so it it was in multi-dose vials in australia in the about the 70s and 80s you know there was discussion about was this a good thing or not um, you know, there was never a full consensus, but overall there was a feeling, look, if we can get it out of the vaccine, it will probably make people happier. Because mm, so there, there was public concern because everybody looked at mercury well, as again, it is yeah, well, mercury, a poisonous thing. Well, um, mercury caused it some is, right? major problems in Japan. You know, they had all the poisoning from the fish and, and like, you know, so there'd been some big mercury scares which had caused terrible um, you know, chronic disease in mm. populations from the tuna, not from the vaccines, or no, no, not from the vaccines. So okay. they've been, and this is you know where uh, RFK comes from is is you know mercury from industry contaminating water supplies, contaminating food supplies, and poisoning people. And unfortunately, in the last hundred years, there have been some massive mercury poisonings, usually from industry. You know, pumping out mercury and getting into people, uh, whether through the the fish or um, you know through um, other exposures, and then those people getting debilitating chronic disease. Yeah, so that's how we know mercury is highly toxic. So, so was there so studies showing background. that it's bad in vaccines? Though? No. So so that's where you know there was certainly no definitive data. In fact, if anything, the weight of the data suggested that what was being given in the vaccines, which was a very, very small dose, mm. um, was not causing harm, right? What about but a, the blood-brain barrier thing? Well, well, again, yeah, just put that aside. Just Let's okay. get to where the vaccine industry was. So yep. the vaccine industry, again, is um, 
trying to do the best thing. And so when concerns get raised, such as about Mercury, um, you know, they'll look to see, well, is there any evidence that that is really, you know, would suggest this is 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 harmful. Um and, and obviously if they don't find that evidence, then you have two choices. You either say, oh well we don't find any evidence, so we're just going to leave it in there. But what more commonly happens is, well, there's a you know, well, we haven't shown it's harmful. We're aware the community that there are some people in the community, including RFK, who obviously have concerns about it. We're not sure they're legitimate, but they have concerns. Sort of to protect the vaccines, we should we let let's try and move away from the use of mercury. So, so Australia was one of the first countries to do that. Um, so we stopped using multi-dose flu vaccines like thirty years ago. Uh, we went to single shot, you know, where your flu vaccine comes in a syringe. And that there's no mercury. mercury in that. Because what it, do they use? Do they have preservative that's no, used in No, there's no surrogate? preservative. Okay. Because you don't need a preservative. If it's a single dose, you just pack it in a sterile syringe or a sterile vial. It's only ever opened once. There's no opportunity. And so they deliberately actually decided back then, as a policy, they would go to single dose, what we call single dose vaccines and they did that in australia we were one of the first adopters in the world right australia yeah no um good on us you know i mean there's still some vaccines in australia that are in multi-dose because they're very rare ones like rabies vaccine which we import um and and so you know some of those may still have have mercury in them you know thiamersol but very few Mm-hmm. Certainly not the the vaccines we're giving to to children here. So, so they quietly moved away from putting it in. That wasn't necessarily an admission that it was harmful. And this is where you know, because again, the people say, oh, you know, they secretly took it out because they knew it was harmful. That it wasn't that. It was a risk benefit assessment. Like, look, we we can't show a, a, a distinct risk, but we accept that if it's possible to make a vaccine without having mercury in it, let's do that regardless because that's probably a good thing. Um, so, the, so again, the vaccine industry is isn't an evil monster. I mean, yeah, that, and I'm not trying to say no, that. No, no. But, but, I know you're prefacing. But, um, okay, so what about that blood-brain barrier with the monkey then? Like, Does that not show that it's a bit sus? No, well, again, uh, when 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 you have to drill down the science, so you know you can set up studies to show different things, that, but you have to look at it holistically mm-hmm. at the the weight of evidence. Um, do we know what happens when that mercury goes to the brain? What's a safe level of mercury in the brain? These Wait. things are really hard to answer. Fair and, enough. And do and, we and, have and, an answer for is is there a safe level of mercury to have in your brain? Because well, again, you know, environmental protection agencies and, you know, again, RFK, this is his background. Yeah. They they try and set limits, you know, what's the average daily acceptable exposure to mercury, all right? You know, so they have all these limits. You say, are those limits really accurate? No. I mean, <laughs> they're best guess. Like, because how, how do you prove that, you know, if you have a million people and you expose them to four parts per million mercury, that they'll all respond the same way. You know, they're all different. 
they're different sizes, they have different metabolisms, they're eating other different chemicals. So, so you know, when, when regulators set limits of any sort, they're not saying, look, you know, it's perfectly safe, uh, 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 you know, um, below this limit. And yeah, but it, it comes back to what you were saying above before this limit. about the statistical significance. Yeah, yeah. So this, this, but this is what I'm trying to tell you is, is you know, that, uh, again, they try to do a, 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 as good a job as they can mm. and some people will disagree with that. And so RFK might say, but I think the limits that they were accepting are too high and he's entitled to that. But what does the science say? Well, again, the science like, well, doesn't I mean, I give it... a definitive answer because it can't. You cannot say what is the safe level of mercury for every person on this planet. You can say on average most people seem to tolerate this amount of mercury, but, but I can't way. say there's not some rare person who, whose kidneys are not working who's, who's that is going to be too much mercury. Mm. And there's no way to do that science. We, we, it's mm. like we can't do studies on the 7 or 8 billion people on this planet monitoring every one of them and the yeah, input. Of course, so of science is an approximation, particularly when you're talking about you know, these types of things. And that's why then suddenly the, the public health people get very protective because they're going, you know, you know, a crazy could come in here and, and destroy everything we've built up over decades, which is trying to, to balance risk and benefit. And, and they, they'll say, no, there's no level of any of these things that are acceptable. Well, one, that's impossible to achieve. Two, that that might destroy all all of the the beneficial drugs and vaccines that we have. Well, if we're talking about mercury, it was possible to achieve no mercury. Right? It was with, with the effort single, and single, cost and cost. Yeah, of course. And and in fact, we and, and I, I guess where you know, and I, I take his point on this. So Australia was a wealthy country, so we, you know, made a decision. The government and they were happy to bear the cost of that effectively through CSL that they went to single-dose influenza and, okay. you know, we've been using that. That cost, because, you know, the cost of, of putting each, each vaccine in a single dose is a lot more expensive, believe me. <laughs> I know mm. that cost. Dramatically more expensive than putting in a multi-dose vial. So we could afford it. Glass cost. But, but uh, well, it's <laughs> and, not and just... the sterile it's, process. It's, it's, and... it's, it's yeah. yeah. It's, it's, um, uh, but in any event... Um, that was, so rich countries could do that. Now, he then says, oh, but, you know, we're still selling, um, you know, multi-dose files in India and, mm. you well, know, poorer they, countries. Didn't, and so he did raise that in his interview. But Yeah, well, I heard that Bill Gates did that with polio and then now they've found more polio strain, a polio vaccine, vaccine strain from the polio. No, other way around. Polio from the vaccine is bigger than the issue of polio in India and India outlawed the Bill Gates vaccine for polio. Is that correct? No. So again, <laughs> I mean, there's nuance and that's why yeah, I'm asking. No, there's I nuance don't know to the everything nuance. and it's important to get it right. So there's yeah. two types of polio vaccines, right? There's a live vaccine, mm -hmm. which is a live virus. Yeah. Okay. Um, and there's a, a killed vaccine. So mm. dead virus. That and that's the one that needed no. for the multi-dose, the So mercury. live vaccines, you can't put mercury in because that would kill the virus. Yeah. All right. So we're, we're, the, the vaccines in multi-dose vials that had mercury in them, 
were, were not live virus. So measles, mumps, rubella, live viruses, there's no mercury, mm -hmm. all right? Um, so, so we need to get that straight. So it was like the tetanus and the um, uh, killed polio, um, uh, you know, pertussis, these types of vaccines that in the multi-dose that had the mercury. Um, and obviously, if, if they're being used in multi-dose files, there are other preservatives. So, um, you know, you, you can use like uh, phenol and, um, you know, alcohol, in fact. In the, but unfortunately, that, that's pretty painful to inject. Some, some of the rabies vaccines have, have these things in them and, and people, you know, say that they're pretty painful. So they do. They do have alternatives. Yeah, so the beauty of the, of the beauty of the mercury, and you have to remember, we all were having mercury fillings. People in my generation. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. So all our teeth were full of mercury. Wild. That sounds. Now people go fill with with wider, um, you know, um, resins. And, yeah, that's um, what I've got. got and in resin. fact, some people are having their um, old fillings drilled out because they believe they're being poisoned by the. The mercury in their their fillings, um, I think that's going to an extreme. And, I don't know. Uh, you know, um, again, those mercury amalgam fillings are being used for you know probably a hundred years. So, um, you know, mm. and people have lived with them all their lives. So, um, again, the idea, and this comes back to your question. Like, I'm sure, you know, RFK was like, <gasps> you know, those people are dying who've got you know, mercury fillings. Well, anyone over 60 years of age on this planet <laughs> will all be carrying mercury fillings and probably a lot more mercury than maybe in the, the vaccine. So well, I guess there's a difference. I don't know. I don't know. It depends again, whether it's in it would a different get into form your, and, and get like, into your no, brain, yeah. whether it, where it sits, you know, does it just sit there? Does it leak out? Does but, it have but a this protective is why case? I'm, but this is why I'm saying there's so many nuances. It's just not black and white. And of I think course it's not. important to, to distinguish. So with polio, so yeah. the issue with polio, which we've recognized for a long time, is that the live polio, which is the oral one, you just, you know, as kids, we got it on a... Um, they had gave us a sugar cube and they they put the the polio which is the virus on the sugar cube and then we we just swallowed it all right um so unfortunately because it is a live virus that can actually cause polio yes right makes sense it it it, it as a virus it can mutate back to um the wild what we call the wild type so so because if you so if you're using the you know the oral um live virus polio vaccine you'll always have polio you'll have much less polio but because mm. you're actually putting it back into the environment the virus because you're excreting it mm. um then you, you know other people can can get infected by that vaccine virus that someone else has excreted um and now get polio yeah so you can't so you can reduce polio but you can't eradicate it using that live vaccine so now we're all moving to inactivated and again australia did this donkeys years ago because again we we're generally leading the world in a lot of these areas um you know where we've moved from using the oral to only using the inactivated the inactivated can't cause polio so if everyone on the planet goes to inactivated there should be no polio because there's no animal reservoir. So the only place polio can come from currently is from the oral live vaccine, believe it or not. 
Um, yeah, okay. And so, so Bill that's, was using that's that. why Bill Gates and everyone are, are working to to move all the world from using oral, and oral's a lot cheaper and easier to make. So that's again, it's more expensive to move to the inactivated. And obviously, then if it's inactivated, you know, if it's in a multi-dose vial, it may may have mercury. Again, I haven't looked at all the different brands being made in India to know. Fair enough. But but you know, so uh, again, there's always a context around all these things, and it's always a risk benefit. Mm. Um, you know, and 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 so we can't right. separate those two things out. Okay. Well, let me get to the other bit that he said. He said, "Where was it?" This, okay, so the Lazarus, Lazarus study by the CDC used a testing machine counting system of cluster analysis, and they found that fewer than one out of a hundred vax injuries are reported. That was the first, well, no, that was the premise of the study that fewer than one out of one hundred vaccine injuries are reported because it relies on voluntary reporting. Yeah, but the Lazarus study by the CDC with their cluster analysis using machine analysis found that one out of 37 kids were getting potential vaccine injuries. However, that can't be proven because it's a statistical analysis. So again, this is conflating, I think, different sources of information. So um, I don't know. That's just yeah, what he no, said yeah, was no, related to that particular no, study. So, so, so the particular study we're citing is that, you know, um again back in the sort of 70s um it was felt that there was a need because prior to that basically you got your you know your vaccine got approved and it got rolled out and that was the end of it mm. so you didn't collect any information uh, but with various lobbying um uh and desire to have more data they the government set up what they call passive reporting systems uh, which is there you know, people could report a vaccine injury um, and because they're passive you know there's no requirement on anyone to report it so obviously if it's a mild you know you get a vaccine you have a sore arm most people aren't going to bother to report it yeah but that would be and, included as an adverse event would it well yeah it like... is it, everything that occurs that wouldn't have occurred if you hadn't received the vaccine is an adverse event. This is where, again, you have to be really careful. And that's why we have placebo control. So when we, you know, in the phase three trial, we're jabbing people with saline, just salt water. Mm. Some of those will get um, incredible side effects. Some will say, oh, my arm's been falling off for a week. All right. Like, because, because some of it is psychological. Yeah. All right. Some of it may just be the, fear of needles or the trauma like uh, the anxiety so they'll say oh, i had you know my heart was racing for days after i had it and and it you know so that's why you need a placebo yeah well, it's so important pussies out there. right so so no so everything that occurs after a vaccine a vaccination is considered a vaccine adverse event and that's why you will also get vaccine adverse events in the placebo group and then you subtract them so that's mm. why the phase three is so important because now you have the, what you might call the real adverse event. Yeah. All right. Because you're subtracting the non-real adverse events in mm. the control arm. When you have a passive reporting system, you don't have a placebo. So you don't have that opportunity. 
So, so there's two sides to passive reporting systems. One is that a lot of people aren't going to bother to report it, all right, or aren't going to know to report it or haven't got the time to report it, all right. And so that creates what we call an under-reporting factor. And, yeah. and everyone accepts it's real, like as it's been proved and it, it, it's obvious, so logical and obvious, mm. right? And people have tried to calculate what that is. Now, the interesting thing is it varies according to the type of side effect. So if it's a side effect that, say, doctors are very aware of, they're much more likely to report it than if it's something that, you know, they wouldn't normally think of as related to a vaccine. Like a headache. Uh, or a migraine. Well, yeah, like, um, you know, say, say someone comes in with a, a sore toe and they've had a vaccine two weeks ago, the doctor's not going to connect the sore toe with the vaccine. The vaccine's given up here, you know, the sore toe down there, you've probably stubbed your toe. He's not going to report it. He's not going to make an association. Now, it may turn out <laughs> that there is some weird vaccine side effect affects the circulation in your toe and it, it, it causes sore toes, but it won't get reported because it will be missed mm. because it's not, there's no obvious link. All right? And you probably wouldn't even go to the doctor for that. And you may <laughs> not go to the doctor, all right. Yeah. So, so that under-reporting factor is not consistent. Yep. So he calculated it as, as a factor of 100. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, even when you look into that, you know, it's not that serious adverse events were under-reported by 100 and sore arms were underreported by 100. Do you know what I mean? It's a, yeah, yeah. And so most people would say the overall underreporting factor may be a factor of 10, it may be a factor of 20. But for some things, it may be a factor of 100. Mm. All right. So there is an underreporting side of it. But for the serious things. But then you have yeah. the other side, which is what, you know, the people arguing with RFK say, but because there's no placebo, we, you know, you need to subtract out all of the, Things that are happening after vaccination that actually have nothing to do with the vaccine that you would see in a placebo group if they were in being compared. Um, so, so you have to now go take that off. So you have to rebalance it. You have to correct for for this underreporting, but don't forget to also correct for reporting of things that actually have no connection to the vaccine. Mm. And. Um, so that means most people in the field, I guess, would say, well, passive reporting systems are a waste of time. They were done to make to keep everyone happy, but they, they really aren't very good sources of information. So there are what we call active reporting systems, mm. which are different. So that's, that's where you, say, give someone, everyone who's getting a vaccine give, gets given a phone app, and then the app reminds them every week to tell whether they got symptoms or not so it's actively seeking them to tease out are they have they had any side effects when you give those sort of active things you get a much higher rate of side effects than you do with the passive systems um you know by orders of magnitude um they still they still again have to you know you'd, you'd have to work out a way to correct them for you know the side effects you'd get after a placebo. So, so, so they're better at, at eliciting side effects, but again, a lot of the side effects they elicit may not actually be connected to the vaccine. Yeah. Okay. So all these systems uh, have have terrible um, problems on all sides, and 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 so they're not, and that's why we need phase three clinical trials are so important because ultimately we don't have anything else. 
I mean, these other systems, a lot of us would say they're next to useless. And that's the truth. But, you know, because they, they're misused more than they're properly used. Yeah, because I noticed during the COVID times that everybody was quoting the VAERS yeah. study, the VAERS reporting, yeah. and it's 10 times yeah. more. Um, and then the, I guess, the industry or the official narrative was, no, it's not actually being underreported this time because everybody's focusing on it. So we, I guess, the, we don't know. Do and we? so that, that, so unfortunately you end up with a situation, yeah, where, where, you know, um, you have to discount the value of it from all directions. So if we discount um, the value of that, just to go back to COVID, where are we? Where are we standing? We found out so far that the, the clinical studies were kind of a waste of time because they had no statistical significance. No, in they terms weren't of a waste of time. <laughs> They showed that the vaccines were had a, a a very important effect on symptomatic infections. All right, so they were reducing symptomatic infections. We didn't measure whether they were stopping all infections, because there's also what we call asymptomatic infections, which are infections where you don't know you've got it, mm. but you can still pass it on. And it turns out that overall the vaccines weren't that good at stopping that, and that's why the vaccines didn't stop transmission. Any claim that the vaccine stopped transmission is again complete false. Um, so we should didn't locked ourselves um, in our rooms and stayed in our houses then. <laughs> well, no, is it again that you know the 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 situation we had? I mean, when we're trying, if you're trying to eradicate a virus, and again, this is where there's no right or wrong answer. It's all relative to the situation. So, if you look at what happened with the original SARS coronavirus mm. you know so 2003 we had an outbreak um you know it was much more lethal so uh, one in 10 people who got it including young healthy nurses doctors um you know died one in 10 that's a lot right that's i mean with covid we're talking point basically 0.01 percent and mainly people over 80 here we're talking 10 percent young healthy people were dying of of sars we didn't have vaccines. In fact, you know, we well, you made one. We we, yeah, we made a successful one after it, after yeah, the okay. event. Um, yeah, but it didn't have the transmissibility to continue going. Well, no, it 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 was transmissible, but but you know, because it was such a nasty virus, the enormous efforts were put into basically identifying people mm. who had been exposed and locking them all down putting them into isolation. Yeah, but that's right? the and they, eradic idea. and they eradicated it because they, yeah. they did it early. Um, and, you know, anyone who says, oh, you couldn't, you couldn't have done that with, with COVID, again, that's a nonsense. Australia did it. Mm. You know, we actually went from having, you know, community transmission at reasonably large scale, thousands of people in Australia infected. We actually eradicated it completely. I mean, everyone seems to forget we, we achieved that mm. without vaccines by using these strategies of, of, you know, if someone's a contact, trace the contacts, isolate the contacts, stop the viral transmission, right? Not necessarily lock down the community because I think, again, you know, there's two, and this is where people confuse the issue. When you have small numbers of, of events, you know, in the hundreds or even thousands, right? You can identify all of the individuals who are infected. You can identify everyone who's been in contact with them, all right? And they are the people who need to be locked up. 
not the community. Do you know yeah, I mean? yeah, you quarantine people that are infected. Yeah, that's yeah, the you, point. You that's take what they them out Ebola. of the community. That's what right? they did yeah, with all yeah, the series. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. And, and that is incredibly, movies, you know? and, and it, it takes a lot of work, right? But it's yeah. incredibly effective, and that's how we eradicated SARS. So we mm. knew we could do this for a coronavirus. So yeah, just putting it in in context, we 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 successfully eradicated SARS from the planet. Well, from human COVID one. We we yep. still don't know where it came from entirely, but but you know we eradicated it from humans, and it hasn't come back. You know, amazing success story, not talked about enough. No vaccine. Hmm. Um, so come to COVID. Well, why didn't the same thing happen for COVID? At the, at at the original outbreak, that virus was no more transmissible than SARS. Mm. You know, we you know so technically, we should have been able to eradicate it globally, just like we did SARS. But but politics. Yeah, China didn't but tell us, right? But politics. Well, a mixture of things. Um, you know, it was in the middle of you know a lot of conflict between US and China. They weren't getting along. A lot of friction, trade wars, um, and you know, and then the US administration uh, under Trump announced that they were taking all their money out of WHO because the US it was a big funder of yeah. WHO, and they announced they're pulling the lot. Yeah, well, they were number one, right? They and then. Bill Gates was number two, something like that. But, yeah. um, but in any event, and th this is all happening pre the pandemic, just before the pandemic. Yeah. You know, the timing is impeccable, right? So, so, and China had offered to fill the hole in the WHO budget that was going to be created by the US pulling all their money out. All right. Mm. So this is a scenario going into the outbreak. So. So basically, rather than everyone working on the same page, um, everyone getting together under the umbrella, say, of WHO, which is meant to be, that's their role, right, to bring all the different countries together to say, right, you know, let's get in here, let's sort this outbreak, you know, work out what's going on, isolate everyone, close it down and eradicate it. Yeah, like quarantine in the traditional sense of what quarantine means, which is track, trace. Those yeah, that are infected yeah, right at the the at the source, ha, ha, the source of the outbreak in Wuhan. Yes, right, or wherever it may be. But well, in yeah. this case, it, yeah. it was Wuhan, so yes. that's, that's where it was, True. right? The, the institute. So rather <laughs> than that happen, well, yeah, yeah <laughs> obviously that's a whole other story. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll continue but, with but, this one. But uh, in any event, you know, yeah, that clearly that should have happened. But what happened instead? The the Chinese. For whatever reason, um, denied that you know it was a serious outbreak was happening. They didn't welcome other people in to to assist or to investigate. Um, they got the WHO and they fed WHO a lot of false information, mm. right? So they fed information which wasn't true, and in fact, their own doctors later contradicted and said that wasn't what we told the government. Um, they told them there was no human-to-human -human transmission because, of course, if there was no human-to-human -human transmission, it's not really a major worry. Yeah. It's going to be easy well, to shut down. I remember seeing that Chinese girl that was trying to be super vocal about it and we've never seen her since. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, as I say, a lot of things have happened in three years. But, but, but essentially, um, there was a deliberate campaign of misinformation 
And unfortunately, that misinformation was fed to the world through the CDC, who were trying to stay on side with China more than I would argue they were interested in pursuing the actual truth of the matter. So the they CDC put out, or the WHO? Uh, well, yeah, sorry, WHO. Yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, CDC came in a bit later with their own um, failures and um, because again, for testing and um, and well, for the PCR testing PCR and getting tests. on top of it in the US. Yeah. Um, and and again, the other big narrative that um, was that came out of the WHO, which broke their own policy on outbreaks, mm. was they said there should be no interruption of flights in and out of China, um, and that that you know countries shouldn't shut their borders. The WHO said that, and they, they said have that said, should, shouldn't have said that. No, because their own rule book says the first thing you do to control outbreak is you you totally stop all movement of people mm. in and out of the outbreak zone. So if the outbreak zone is China, you stop all movement of people in and out of China. If the outbreak you know, zone is just Wuhan, you stop all movement of people in and out of Wuhan. That that's in the rule book. Like that's the WHO yeah. rule book. But, but like, suddenly, no, yeah, no. suddenly because they're under pressure, because presumably China is saying, "Do you want, uh, you know, five hundred million dollars, or don't you?" Mm. And so do, you have WHO, which every country in the world is looking up to, saying, "You know, suddenly, oh, you shouldn't be uh, stopping movement of people, you know, in and out of of, of this outbreak zone." Uh, and we can assure you, it, it's not transmissible human to human. Complete and utter, you know, falsehoods, both of them. So no one really intervened early enough. I know Australia and the US, you know, by February got cold feet and just said, we're just shutting flights. But it was too late. Mm. Yeah, but that was March, right? Yeah, it was, it was sort like of February February through through March. Yeah. Countries started to... But, but by then, the by then of course, it had all gone to Africa and... You know, all thanks to, unfortunately, um, you know, WHOs, you know, and, you know, they screwed up. So, WHO, World Pandemic Treaty. What do you reckon? Yeah, look, um, they didn't, they, they don't come out of this pandemic, you know, um, looking great, unfortunately. I think, you know, they, they, they are a well-respected organization, you know, but, Again, I think the politics, and again, it's not their fault. I mean, you know, they they had this war going on with the U.S. trying to to essentially destroy the WHO. Right? Um, this is pre-pandemic, you know, mm. and China coming in and looking to use WHO for influence in as part of its war or trade war, whatever you want to call it, with the U.S. Yeah. So. So WHO sort of ends up the bunny in the middle. So in the midst of all that politics, they got things wrong and I think really hurt their reputation, which isn't to say that WHO is not a legitimate organisation and an important organisation. And again, never throw the baby out with the bathwater, but by God, they need to be sorted out. They need to have their own inquiries and come clean and, and say, look, we screwed up. For all these reasons, some of which were outside our control, and some of them were within our control, but you know, the, you know, we, we shouldn't have done it this way, and we admit we shouldn't have done it that way, right? Until they do that, I find it—I can't see how can anyone trust them. 
Because you know what I mean? Well, Until that's just they any relationship, up, right? That's any yeah, relationship. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's just the basis. Exactly. Like, if you... I knew you cheated and you haven't confessed to it, I'm not going to trust you. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah exactly. Um, and, and, yeah, you have to, and you have to earn the trust back. Oh, of course. I think that WHO pushing these agendas um, on the back of what I think is a failed response to this pandemic. Terrible timing. <laughs> is absolutely dreadful timing. It's almost like they're hoping that, the noise that is created by this sort of takes over mm. from people looking at what happened at the beginning. However, to touch on that previous battle that I think is definitely that argument is still going on, right? So the US, by the sounds of it, was saying, we don't want to be a part of this. And then China was saying, let's be a part of it, which is kind of like the idea of a globalist or nationalist identity for health for these yeah. big bodies yeah. it sounds like that the u.s or under trump wanted to say let's be nationalists yeah. let's like yeah. be a more sovereign yeah. nation yeah. and absolutely take care and of everything US, ourselves yeah that is the u.s yeah and that's over the, the last hundred years they've often been isolationist and and focused on very them. much internally yeah, yeah. That, and that's, that's yeah. you know it's had its benefits and it's had its yeah. cost yeah um and you know the uk did a similar thing with brexit yeah. and it's it looks yeah. like the world's kind of slowly moving towards that in our sentiment because we lost trust with this global identity yeah. Um, however, there are a few things that are in that pandemic treaty in terms of, uh, the wording that they're using or the wording they're taking out more so. I'm going to paraphrase this, so I might butcher this, but I saw this from a, a great guy that I'm hoping to have on the podcast soon. He's from Canada and he's been looking at rather closely. Um, and they're taking out essentially the line that goes along the lines of valuing human life and human rights and human liberty and stuff like that and they're taking out that paragraph and they're just making it about human equity which is a little uh concerning <laughs> uh, you know it's concerning yeah equity is that it you know everyone interprets it differently it's not it's not something that you can easily measure and no. and it's a, it's it's sort of qualitative assessment whereas i think liberty you can measure you know, individual what's the difference? Liberty. So, if people yeah. go, okay, what's the difference? What is human equity? Like, what does that even mean? Uh, well, you'd, you'd probably have to ask the WHO what that means. But I guess, you know, their constituents are the, the majority, a bit like the United Nations, um, which they sort of are part of, um, you know, are predominantly poorer countries. They, they they form the vast majority of countries. Obviously, the wealthier countries are in the minority. Mm. So if if they base it on numbers um, of their constituents, not necessarily who's funding them, but who are the members, of course they would be lean towards, you know, how do we improve the 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 health of those countries relative to the wealthy countries. So. So that 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 would involve doing a balancing, rebalancing, and um, well, I'm not quite. But how clear that might play out in health is is, I guess, what what might concern people. I don't know what you mean. Can you explain that in a different way? All right. Well, say say most of their constituents are in Africa, just by number. Yeah. So, and they, you know, their biggest problem is malnutrition. Mm. And then they have a small number of constituents, um, like the U.S. and Australia, who's Problem is probably over nutrition. Mm. 
So they intervene to say, well, we're going to take calories from these people. They don't need them and um, on equity basis and also it's causing them harm. And we're going to redistribute all those calories to these countries that need them Ooh. to improve their health. They could do that. That sounds... Well, they, 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 you know, sounds and how worrying. they would do that, like how... You know how they would move all the grain from the U.S. to Africa or whatever, and I mean but, that's essentially but, but, but that would be that's this. where health and you know, um, and I guess RFK he must support that because he said, you know, malnutrition is the biggest cause of infectious disease, which more, more, even more than vaccines. And well, so he's the, suddenly the, the WHO that, yeah. might have a platform where they say we have a right to intervene in the food supply and and who gets what food well, that's communist now well, <laughs> but no but it could be done under equity health well, equity yeah it's a new no, word. no but, but, but <laughs> and that's where i think it 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 the people have a right to say well how far does this how does how far does it extend mm. in other words you know when we're just talking about health i think people think well individual health you know uh, uh, do they have access to antibiotics if they have an infection? But they're not thinking about health in terms of the world's food supply or mm. the world's water supply. If WHO truly have the power to create equity in health, that will mean redistributing the water, redistributing the food. I mean, it, 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 that, that's what it means. You know, I'm not saying that's what they're intending, but it would give them the power to do that because. Food ultimately is the biggest driver of good health. I have never thought, well, it's not that I've never thought about that in general, but I haven't thought about that angle for the pandemic treaty at all. And that is terrifying. <laughs> like, uh, you know, it shouldn't be terrifying. Just, you, just have, you should just think about all of the, 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 what this might cover and do you need to exclude some things like, do you need to put some provisos? It goes so far and not beyond. It's a bit like under cover of a pandemic, if you have a right to, you know, um, lock people up and, you know, close borders and do, mm. you know, what, what power might that give, you know, so you've got a war going on. Um, you know, could you use the pandemic and what, you know, is arguably being done for, health reasons to advantage one or other party at war. Do you know what I mean? By, by creating could. limits. And so this is where we have to be careful. I, think, I do think the WHO needs to be focused on health. Um, there should be other bodies who look at some of these mm. other inequities that clearly exist on the planet. Yeah, of course. But I don't know that it's the WHO's province. I think, you know, again... We should define what they mean by health. Yes, and and you know, everyone be aware of what what the outer bounds of that are. Mm. Um, and similarly, what powers are you devolving to them? Absolutely, I mean, you know, it's a balancing act, isn't it, between retaining national powers and devolving some of those powers to international bodies. That that can be beneficial. Mm. It can also be harmful that's why i'm more into individualist individualism as like the basis of like how we go about building society which is like how can we assist the individual create the best life possible for themselves not 
as a it's good for the collective means because that's what America was founded on, which is like it the individualist individual liberties and freedoms, not freedoms and of the group. Because when you have freedoms of the group, they say you must uh you know, for example in this, you shouldn't have all this food in your country because it's good, it's for the greater good. And then you go, well, there's a lot of things that have been done throughout history for the greater good um, that have not <laughs> turned out well. Yeah, but there have been things done that have turned out well. So we have to be careful. Again, um, there is a need for um, some collective policies as opposed to individual policies. It's a balancing act. There's no yeah, such thing fair. as absolute. Fair, fair. But but we have to get that balance right, um, and and be you know can't we we can't afford for it to go too far one way, in which case we have anarchy, yes. or too far the other way, in which we have a totalitarian system. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. And trying to find that that middle ground and that balance is difficult, and it's different country to country mm. and cultural culture to culture. Some yeah, like cult some cultures some need cultures, a king. Well, yeah, and and yeah, some cultures and, thrive on organisation and and you know sort of lots of rules. Yeah, like Germany, um, super organised. Yeah, I mean, yeah, very know, Japan. Society. I mean, Japan, very yeah. structured society. Yeah, um, Australia typically has been at the other extreme, which is you know um, I would say you know uh, having grown up, um, we were quite free. Like I mean. We've we've got more constrained, I think, um, over time. Yeah, well, as we call it here, the nanny state. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that 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 has happened, and um, you know, I think we we need to go back to finding some more of that what we were famous for as a country, mm. which is that ochre spirit and that sense that you know people can just be people. They don't they don't have to be politically correct. Mm. You know, they, they, they can break the rules. I mean, you yeah, know. Dance on the bar. Yeah, we don't have yeah, to worry yeah, about like, health and safety every yeah, moment Well, you know, day. and again, it's a balancing act, but I don't think a nanny state is the answer to anything. Um, you know, it, yes, we do need rules and regulations and, of and, and some barrier, you know, but, but we ne do need a, a lot of sense of individual freedom within that. Yeah, well, you need enough rules to be a civilized society. Yes, exactly. So then we can all work together for business sake mm. and we can construct things and, and you know, build a better society. You know, so we can have all of our fundamental utilities and amenities and be able to have a business and be able to have a family and be able to afford that and, and do life, right? That's why we need the rules because without them, that's a lot harder. You know? Having an energy grid is a lot harder in anarchy, I, I would mm. presume. Yeah, and I, I think... I mean, and what the way I would see it, and I think this is where they've got it wrong, Who's is, they? is well, the policy makers, yeah, okay. the politicians, largely, yeah, yeah, okay. the legislators yeah, of Australia, because yeah, they create all the laws, and they there's do. more, and there's more, and there's more, and there's. Well, I can tell you, over mm. my lifetime, like, just outrageous, um, the the number of adding and no subtracting. That, yeah, it's been very little subtracting. Um, there's been a lot of adding, and and you know. If they, what they need to do is, is, is get the community or it's like almost the opposite of what they're doing. So at the moment they're saying, well, people aren't respectful enough or of minorities or this or that. So we're going to legislate this and this and this and this and this. We're going to, you know, tie the whole of society down because of a few, you know, 
renegades who, who pushed the boundaries, all right? Mm. What you would normally, a better system and, and what, you know, I think we operate under past is, you know, if we can control our own renegades, we should need no laws whatsoever. In other words, society itself should police the, you know, the people who are racist or whatever should be shut down by the people around them. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Without but... needing any laws, because laws, own, own, they, 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 don't, they don't solve the problem and, and they affect everybody. Um, generally, most people who uh, you know, are affected by it aren't the people who were actually causing the trouble. Yeah, so well, I think the idea of self-policing, it's like in the classroom, you know, the teacher, if, if the classroom policed itself, the teacher didn't have to be there. Do you know what I mean? And nor did he have to have draconian rules. If I catch you doing this, you know, this is the consequence because the classroom policed itself because they knew they had a lot of freedom as a consequence of, no, of creating their own boundaries. Mm. And yeah, so well, it's I the think, responsibility uh, of having freedom, right? With great power comes yeah. great responsibility. Yeah. Shout outs to Spider-Man yeah. um, or Spider-Man's uncle or grandfather, whoever it was. Okay. Um, <laughs> I didn't realize it was so profound a comic. but um, so profound. But yeah, that's exactly the point, right? Is that if we have boundaries, but you know they're further away, we build things like manners. Mm. We teach our yeah. kids them. Yeah. But I think there's also another like interplay in a society level that's happened that we aren't as uh, able to raise our kids as much because we, it's moved more into the state's hand with everybody, you know, everybody's working now, right? We can't afford to not work or not have everybody working, you know, in a home. Like you need both mum and dad for the most part for just an average family. Obviously, if you build wealth creation techniques and you can get out of the rat race. But for the most part, right now, it's like everybody needs to be in work. So you can't be there and teach your kids all those values and your values. Then they go to school and they might not respect the school teacher as much because it's not their parents. They don't have that fundamental genetic and spiritual connection to, oh, my God, I want to be like you, like you do with your parents. So it's kind of like that's a big interplay. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, as you say, the changing societal norms, you know, have dramatically changed over the last 40 years in Australia, you know. Yeah. Um, and as you say, the fact that both parents now often full-time work, you know, is completely yeah. um, different to where it was 40 years ago. Yeah, and um, also just to preface it, it's not to say that, like, we should then go, oh, so that means, you know, should we get rid of women working? No, of course not. No, there's women no. can fulfill things and yeah. they have a lot to add to society and to people and create, and, you know. Spiritual banks, like they're they're very competent. Um, but it's, but we it's need to more find how you have to realize society's changed. So so how do we remold society around we, modern yeah. life? You know, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have mobile phones. Mm. You know, <laughs> when we were yeah. growing up, lucky to have television. So yeah. but but you know those things have all had massive impacts. But we haven't restructured our society. Mm. really to accommodate those things and and work out how to get the the best out of them while not losing you know what we had before and you know what i mean and, yeah, and I that requires rethinking and, and the trouble is it takes a lot of work it takes a lot of thought yeah and i think what we now have in our policy makers if I, to be frank is laziness 
And I think even with COVID, what we saw was an enormous amount of laziness. Well, let's just lock down the whole state rather than have to think about, you know, how do we, you know, test and and isolate and, and, you know, control this through normal processes. It's just like a laziness. Oh, just pass a law and and say no one can leave their house. Well, it's not only that. It was, oh, let's each, you know, for the most part, the leaders were like, oh, I'm doing what this unelected bureaucrat says we should do that doesn't work in the industry. <laughs> you know, yeah, and so uh, la- well. I would call it all laziness. That, yeah, well, that's that it, it, You know, that it's, it's the easy thing to do. Um, it's not necessarily the best thing to do or the right thing to do. And generally the best thing and right thing, as my parents always taught me, is often the hard thing. Mm. You know yeah, what I mean? well, as they say, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. Mm. You know, you don't always want to do it yourself. No. <laughs> so I think I think that we we do need, um, yeah, people to take more responsibility, um, and we need to somehow instill that into our society. There's an expectation of people taking responsibility, mm. and in return, what we're given is more freedom. Yeah. You see, rather than being told, you know, that, that we're going to get less and less freedom, um, there has to be a benefit for, from people taking responsibility because otherwise people aren't going to do it. Yeah. So you have to say to the community, look, you know, we really need you all to step up. We need you to, you know, be civil to each other, to work together, to have common goals, to be good people. You know what I mean? I do. I um, agree. And, and then. We don't. We can get rid of all of this because because all these crazy rules are, are just ridiculous, and they 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 don't serve a purpose, and they're very constraining, um, and it 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 doesn't make it an enjoyable place to live. I mean, mm. the great thing about Australia was, you know, it used to be a fun place to live because, long as again everyone, you know. It was moral, just, Had, and integral. Yeah, yeah. Like, like you could, worked. you could have a bit of craziness, or you could do something that maybe you shouldn't have. But you know, it was a tolerant system because it could be, because there was still an expectation people are good. You know, mm. and and people were good, and like, they did. It's like letting your kids, like as kids, we roamed freely the town. And, oh, and I did. I was lucky. In, in, I had pretty like, uh, you know, free range parents. Oh, like, uh, you know, kind of do it. Do what you need to yeah. do with life. Like, go find, go out on your bikes. Like, we would go all around yeah. Adelaide, like, on our bikes, yeah. just cruising around different skate parks and all that. And it was good fun. You know, sometimes you'd be like, oh, wow, there's this hectic stuff going on. And, you know, we would naturally, as a friendship group, just go, all right, let's get out of here. Because, you know, you're not going to just go up to, I don't know, people, crackheads and be like, yeah. hey, what's going on? Like, no. Yeah. You, you can place yourself. Yeah, <laughs> you can yeah no, and, yeah. and 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 yeah. yeah, I think you know that's what we're losing, and we don't, yeah. you know, we don't realize how much we've lost. Um, you know, would someone let a five-year-old, you know, walk four blocks to go to the shop these days by themselves? No, they wouldn't now. Everybody, you go, know, oh, they're gonna be stolen. Um, yeah. I remember <laughs> just a fun little anecdote. I remember I was on, went down to Bowden on my bike. You know, the suburb. No, I don't know about yeah. Oh, okay. So it's just past North Adelaide, one oh. suburb over. Uh, that is super gentrified, really nice now. Um, but it, back then it was kind of Darrow. And I got like, I was with my friend and I was like, let's go back this way. He's like, no, it's this way. So then we split because <laughs> we were strong headed. 
and be like, oh, I'm going to go this way, you're going to go that way. We'll see who gets back first. Anyway, I was like seven and I got lost. <laughs> and I'm just like on the street crying. I got let in by lovely people in the area. Um, but then, yeah, I had to get told my mama. But people wouldn't allow that these days. No. they. Would, I mean, my parents were obviously concerned. Because I was getting called from a <laughs> random person, a different suburb, but like it worked out. But again, I mean, people were good people, and why were they good people? Like, why do we have so many bad people now? Well, do you know what I mean? It's do an we interest- have more bad people, or is it the media that has over exemplified this? And I don't know. What are the crime rate differences? Are they different? It's a it's a good question, I and again, know. science you should go as you well, say. To, I might have to, to get someone facts. on that knows. Yeah, we need to bring back good people if they're yeah not already there. Because I feel like we're all getting swept up in these hive minds. Yeah, I don't. don't yeah, I just don't know. You know, and maybe you know, um, people talk about faith and and religions, and um, you know, again, that was obviously a lot um, more evident. Back yeah. then, not that everyone was religious. Um, no, but there but, was definitely... but but I think everyone had a, 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 you know, even people who might be say an atheist, still had a sense of faith or the, in in the virtues of people, and we seem to have lost that, as you say. And whether the media have played a role in arguing everyone's an evil person inside, you know what I mean. Mm. Um, and maybe that creates evil um, in people. Well, I have so, learnt from the personal development I've done that just if let's use the example of a close loved one, the way you see them, it's like an already always yeah. listening. So if you're already listening to them and always listening to them in a certain frame of mind. So if I look at you and I go, oh, Nikolai is always angry, you know, he always I pops probably up. am too. <laughs> but, but if I think of you like <laughs> yeah. that, I'll become like, like naturally that. you're just yeah. going to be like that more yeah. in my presence because I'm, yeah. I'm then you're projecting, projecting that, yeah. that onto yeah. you. So definitely the listening we have of one another is a big thing. And I guess from a more, you know, if we look at religions, they try to preach, you know, love thy neighbor yeah. as thy friend or something yeah. of the like yeah. across the board, yeah. they go, you know, you're another person. And yeah. then, you know, you look at the spiritual side and those that go into psychedelics and all that, the same message. Yeah. They will go, we're all connected. Yeah. We're all one, man. Yeah. Like, I love yeah. you. You know, like, yeah. John Lennon, same thing. Yeah. All we need is love. We need to treat each other like we are one another. And I think, you know, that's what, you know, we've lost in a way, particularly in this pandemic, when you look at the different sides and then you realize that none of them are prepared to come and, well, they're certainly not prepared <laughs> right. to debate um, even when they're offered a lot of money to, but, but, you know, yeah, we, well, it was offered to charity. I didn't it? want to yeah. give to charity. <laughs> right. Um, but, but, you know, you see that, that we shouldn't be in that situation. I mean, we're all human. We're all trying to do something good. You know, mm. we might have different perspectives on it, but, you know, if we, if we can get everyone together, we'll probably find we have more in common than we have different. And, you know, again, it's, it's not that. I think people within the vaccine industry don't even believe that some of the things RFK is saying don't have an element of truth. I mean, mm. but you know, I mean, but they they also don't want a situation where if they concede there's an element of truth, he will then use that as a weapon 
to go in even harder against things where he's actually got it wrong. And which naturally so, you that's would. a lack of trust, you see. And that's what I'm saying is that that the reason you have these two polarized sides, neither wanting to give the other ammunition. Mm. Right? I mean, he's willing, right? He's what? he's willing. Well, he's but he's well, willing he to says, sit down and talk. Yeah, but is he willing to give up his whole position? And if they convince him, is he willing to actually, you know, concede? vaccines are safe like his body language doesn't say he's ready and willing to do that he 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 uses the words i can always be convinced mm. but well, they and i, mean, I again we I, see. i'm, I'm the, being the devil's advocate True. Well, maybe, right maybe we should see if you can have that conversation for yeah. the world because they obviously want to see it yeah. and i'm sure people listening to this that have listened to that you know would have whether they have more questions or they've gotten the answers that, you know, mm. go, oh, yeah, fair enough. You know, wherever they're going to sit, they're going to be better off now than they were before because nobody's even willing to answer those questions at all. So, like, first of all, I just want to say thank you for that portion of this conversation and also thank you for the work you've done during this pandemic. We haven't really touched on that too much. Um, but, look, you've done so many other podcasts that they can definitely find exactly what it is you have done with your vaccines. but. Um, I would like to just touch on that and just say, where are we at with yours? You're in yeah. Iran. Are you else place around the world now, or so? Um, so no, it it we we, you know, got approved in Iran, um, mm -hmm. and uh, I think eight eight million doses were used. Obviously, um, by the end of that, everyone in Iran has had COVID. Well, yeah. in fact, everyone on the planet. I mean, in truth, um, you know, because we know the stats. Um, I was just looking at the United Kingdom data um, just last week, um, and uh, and that was showing 90% of everyone in the UK has had COVID, and it's probably 100%. The 10% are just people who've lost their antibodies, but um, but 90% of people were antibody positive. So so basically, we can accept everyone on the planet has now had COVID at least once. Um, some people more than once. Um, so so a lot of the poorer countries, that's all they need. They don't. They they're not pursuing additional doses of vaccine because mm. they're going. We got used the vaccines. We stopped, you know, some deaths. Everyone's had COVID. Everyone's now got natural immunity. It's still it's still there. It's still circulating. But we've got other bigger problems to deal with. Yeah. Um. So, so that that's what's happening in the developing world. Yeah. Is okay. the vaccine util, you know use has dropped. To, to almost nothing. Uh, it's not good for us because our vaccine at the moment is just in that part of the world, um, not the part of the world that's still using it. Um, we we so we're pushing forward with our vaccine. So we're doing a, a next generation vaccine. Um, you know there are still people dying of COVID, um, particularly the elderly. Yeah. Um, despite having had six shots of mRNA, so we clearly need better vaccine. Mm. Um, you know. I would like to think ours is a good uh, contender for that, um, particularly if we... Do you think um, that or you know that? It's very hard to collect the data. And I, know, I, I, I can't give you a clear... I, I have a belief, you yeah. know, because I've seen, you know, people around me who've had it and, and I've had it and what's happened to us. And, but, you know, um, you can't do phase three trials anymore. Because everybody's had the other one. Well, because and yeah, COVID. because everyone's had COVID and everyone's had all these multiple um, doses of vaccine, so so it's not 
easy now. You don't have a clean population to do it in. We have we do a lot of, of animal studies still, so monkey studies where we can. Whenever we do that, we see great results. You know, the monkeys are always protected, including against Omicron and things like that. Yeah, okay. Still with our old vaccine. Mm. So, I mean, you know, can monkeys lie? Like, can the monkey data lie? Well, possibly, but but unlikely. I mean, monkeys are ninety nine percent genetically the same as humans. So we believe that's the best data that there is. And that says our vaccine is really good. So and that's why do... I have that belief in it. But we are trying to make it even better. So we're, we're putting in some new Omicron um, uh, proteins into it um, to, yeah, to, to make it m even more effective. Uh, we're actually looking at um, doing it as an oral vaccine um, like not a as a live one, uh, but just as one you put in your mouth. Like yeah, okay. You swallow. Oh. Um, How does and, that work? Well, you have a lot of um, immune cells um, in your mouth because that's because that that's where you know when your food it's just a lot of foods full of bugs. That's the way most bugs get into your body. So the body has trained all of the cells around the mouth to to watch out for bad bugs. Um, and so as, as I mentioned, the live, um, you know, polio vaccine was an oral vaccine. So, I mean, that was a live one. We're using just a protein based one, but you know, we've just done a monkey study and we've seen great data with that. So we'll be doing a human trial of a, an oral vaccine, hopefully here in the very near future. Um, cool. And that's double blind and all that? Or? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So is it double blind with the monkeys as well? Like do you give some monkeys? Yeah, so you give sub a placebo. They see each other and all that? Yeah, so the monkeys, I mean, <laughs> they they don't know what they're getting, obviously. No. But but you do give um some monkeys a saline injection. Yeah. Okay. Um and, and the other monkeys get the active one and then they all get given the virus and then you watch how they um handle the virus and we always see that what kind of monkeys? Uh, so these are, are rhesus and synonymous macaque. Um, they're, they're sort they're of, um, you know, smaller monkeys. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they, they don't, monkeys don't get so sick with COVID, which is interesting, um, even when they're not vaccinated. What about old monkeys? Yeah, so we actually have done, we've just published a paper on um, some very old monkeys. So macaques live to about 25 years of age. So that's about probably a 70, 80-year-old. So we, we did probably one of the only studies in the world that's been done with 20, 22-year-old macaques um, right back at the very beginning of this, and we saw great protection again. So, so you know, we, again, we, we limit our animal testing because, you know, we, again, it's, it's all a balancing act, you know, risk-benefit, um, but obviously we can't challenge humans. Mm. Um, so, um, uh, uh, but the data has been very positive with that, including with, as I say, this um, latest generation oral vaccines. We're hoping if, if we can get that out and if, if, if we're right about it, um, you know, that should be able to boost people no matter what other vaccine they've had in the past. And I think people would be a lot happier to have a six-monthly boost with, with something that they just put in their mouth rather than, you know, getting um, jabbed with a needle. So I think so. I think that's yeah, that yeah. makes sense. So as a vaccine developer, we never we never stop. We never give up. And then we've got outbreaks, obviously, of different bird flus happening around the world at the moment. Um, okay. 
So, yeah, there's just been some reports again out of China and out of Asia and also out of the US um, of different types of bird flu. Any of those? Pretty severe? Well, um, they've infected humans. So, that, that, you know, there's always influenza in birds, but Mm. it doesn't that often cross over to humans. So, it has crossed over. Um, When bird flu crosses to humans, um, it it doesn't or it isn't always. uh, cause severe disease, uh, but in these cases, it, it, people have died from it. So, um, so you never know like what's around the corner. So we're always trying to anticipate and have a vaccine ready for if there's a pandemic. You know, it's it, it again, it's better to be pre-prepared, um, and we just don't know where the next threat will will come from. How does that work from like a business point of view? Terribly, like. Trying to get prepared You're talking for a bunch to the, of things. The that... poorest vaccine developer in the world right now. You know, we didn't get, you know, yeah. a swamp with billions of dollars of government money, unlike all of our competitors. No, which, um, given the technology you're using and how tried and true it is, it does seem uh, absurd. Seem yeah, absurd. we we were very disappointed and remain disappointed. Um, obviously, we. Um, it doesn't stop us, and um, you know we've been fortunate. We've we had a lot of um, support um, through U.S. government sources, actually, rather than um, from from Australian sources, which have helped us to to do our work over the last twenty five years or so. So, um, but in terms of yeah, like making a buck, um, as mm. I say, we would be the the poorest. Um, successful developers of a COVID vaccine uh, on the planet right now. Um, yeah, but, but in terms of just vaccine business in general, just to have some understanding, because I have a lot yeah. of people that are business owners on this yeah. podcast and we, we talk about all finance yeah. and all yeah. that kind of thing. And obviously you have a business and it's yeah. been successful, you know, till, until recent it's, it's, it's with success- all the government well, it, stuff. It, it's, it's not, it, it's, it survives. So we survive on, on, you could call it government handouts or you know research contracts. Um, so we we haven't survived on selling product. Yeah, okay. Um, but you're always ready so, for something that's coming. Yeah, and well, be- so we, you know we see our role, I guess, is is really a public health role. Is you know we get these government grants that allow us to keep functioning. Um, don't, they don't allow us to to grow. You know, we've been a, a small team that's been about the same size now for. 15, 20 years. So, so, but it keeps us alive. Mm. And um, our interest is, you know, how do we protect the world against, you know, any future pandemic? So it's, it, you know, that, that's our passion. Um, and so it's you, not predicated on making money because you'd, you know, you'd make a vaccine against something that's a, a constant problem if you want to make money. You know, a pandemic, and, the trouble is they only come every 10, 20, 30 years. And and then when they happen, you aren't even guaranteed that you'll get a product because it's all a big race. And again, you, you know, even if you have the best vaccine, it doesn't mean it's the one that the government buys and puts all their money into. So it... it, it I mean, that seems stupid. <laughs> <laughs> like that seems like a bad setup. Like not for you, but from the government perspective, if they're funding all these little labs yeah. that might have the best products, but then the big dogs are getting it for what I can presume is because they've got more money. 
Well, they've got more resources. And so the US, I mean, it, it, it was interesting what happened in the US because the government essentially wrote a check for a billion dollars to anyone who had a candidate vaccine. In the and US? That, in the US, yeah. Okay. yeah. So they, they gave out about $6 billion. Um, we put our hand up. But we, you know, we weren't in the US. We, we, we get money from them, but we just didn't qualify to yeah, get okay. the billion. Um, yeah. And that was upfront money. Oh, that would have been good. Um, <laughs> that would have been, so, been so good. Yeah. So um, so essentially they seeded it all. and um, But as part of that, they then also, with some companies, said, oh, you know, you're too small. You need to partner with a big company. But if you do, here's a billion dollars. Like, yeah. So you can use that for leverage. So, so BioNTech were a tiny company. Pfizer picked up their technology. Pfizer, the biggest pharma company in the world, they had a group about the size of ours, and but so it was only through and they Pfizer. just plug into that supply chain essentially. Yeah, exactly, and into all the regulatory and everything. Yeah, the guys yeah. are all billionaires at uh, Beyond Tech. Um, so <laughs> they went from yeah everyday scientists no one had heard of to multi billionaires. Um, but but uh, we didn't. No, so, um, you know, not, not that I, I have any regrets. Um, I mean, it'd because, be good though. <laughs> look, I, would, it'd be good for Australia, I think, <laughs> yeah. because, you know, apart from anything, it's about proving Australia can, you know, um, compete on the world stage when it comes to cutting edge technologies and, and biomedical science. Mm. And this was our great opportunity, um, you know, at least we we ultimately did deliver, but not with the government behind us or supporting us. And, so why and is, hence why it's in Iran. It's yeah. everyone says, why isn't it in Australia? Well, well, why why is that? If you're allowed to speak on that, that like, did they get it? So they just got it from the US one. Australia no, just got so, it from the US, or no, did, was it a different lab no, in Australia? Or? It's a different. So so University of Queensland. Um, lobbied hard right at the beginning and had some powerful lobbyists working for them. So the government just gave them all the money. So And did um, they they didn't make one though, did they? They failed. Oh. Yeah. Uh, at fail phase one. So why um, didn't they and try they were again? behind us. Well by then they they'd committed to Pfizer and they decided I'll oh, bugger it. Let's just spend billions of dollars buying overseas vaccines. And I think because they'd neglected us and yet we were the obvious you know, from the start, we had all the data behind us to mm. prove that we were going to be the successful one. And I can say that because we were the successful one. Yeah. Um, but I think they, they were so embarrassed by the fact they'd picked a loser um, and completely, you know, wasted all their money and, and screwed up that they, they then would have preferred that we had, had not succeeded, to mm. be frank, that that's where they ended up. Um, that sounds like it ego. was it, like it's it was. Ego. Oh yeah. You okay. know, if you talk at the time, you know, we're talking Greg Hunt and various offsiders in the health department. And um, yeah, it, when you ask me that, that's the only explanation you're left with mm. um, because they did have an opportunity yet yeah, to come back and just pick us up even because we kept going, even, you know, uh, when they didn't support us um, through that early phase. Yeah. Um, but, you know, to this day, they remain sort of... Dismissive. Dismissive, yeah, which which is disappointing, but, you know, nothing new and nothing we can't cope with. But as an Australian, it it, it does rankle when I realise what, what we could have done for Australia's reputation 
and our health by the sounds of it because it doesn't sound like the vaccine that's been out rolled out to everybody has actually been good for our overall health in many ways with the alarming number of adverse events um from you know amp and asia mahodra asim mahodra and you know what they're saying about it and what i've heard you say previously it doesn't look it, it like certainly i think i think it's good. fair to say that um and and i say this having heard you know people like um you know bill gates and um you know um tony fauci say this um so so you know i can't be accused of um but you know the performance of the mrna vaccines um looking backwards now is has been a very disappointing relative to the early promise, you know, that was felt back, you know, when they had that first analysis of the two-month data and they looked great. Mm. And, you know, at that time we didn't know they had all these potential major side effects, but we didn't know about the myocarditis. That only came later. You know, we didn't know that the the effectiveness falls away dramatically over time, so it's lost very, very quickly. Um, and we didn't know that they were going to be completely useless at preventing transmission. So, you know, people, all those three things, you know, Tony Fauci and everyone were, were just counting on based on that early data, and they failed on all three counts. So, yes, looking back, you can only say they didn't live up to their expectation and maybe other technologies that you know weren't center stage like yours including ours i would yeah. say but you know not exclusively ours maybe they would have done a better job if they'd been allowed to compete you know like mm. um because the irony is it's it's like in a marathon it's not the early sprinter who's necessarily going to win the race in fact probably they're not going to and I think the mRNA were, were the early sprinters. Yeah. The, the problem now is, 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 you know, convincing people to admit to their mistakes and giving a chance to the other technologies to now have a, a shot at saying, well, maybe these might have done better if we'd given them an opportunity. Well, if you're listening and you have a position of power to reconsider what the current arrangement is with vaccines, I invite you into the perspective that we are all on a floating rock in the middle of space and it's okay to be wrong. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm sure, you know, again, we're not infallible either. But oh, um, By no means am I. But, I I've, but, in the last uh, week but, I've gotten people but, outside. But, you know, I, I do think we have to be honest and and you know, state the facts and, and similarly, you know, when we look at these other technologies, we have to look at them with the benefit of hindsight and say, where did they perform well mm. and where did they perform badly? Yeah, and, well, and just be honest about it. Yeah, well, I saw that Tony Abbott, he was saying that we had a pandemic response plan and we just didn't follow it at yeah. all. No. Like, like we'd done the planning and we just went, Oh, that that thing we don't need that. That's yeah, and I think that, that's where that. I think it was laziness and arrogance. But similarly, WHO they had a whole pre-pandemic book, and they they threw it out on the first day um, because the politics wasn't conducive to following the book. Like as I say, you know, shutting down 
you know, flights out of China early or anything like that wasn't going to play to, to the politics. So the thing is, politics should never get into health. Like health, health doesn't work well when it's run mm. through politics rather than yes. for, for health. And I think yeah. that being said, we don't want a technocracy either. No, 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 absolutely. Yeah. I, I, you know, health still has to be responsive to, to the overall politics. Like, but, but, you know, the politicization of science, the politicization of mm-hmm. medicine has, has, being oh, yeah. overwhelmingly a negative. Yeah, like you not being I mean? able to actually have discussion. Exactly, that's what yeah, I mean. Yeah, that, yeah, in terms of politicization, in terms of the debate, yes, 100%. You I know, agree. because, and, and that's yeah. because of politics, that people felt it wasn't politically conducive to, to have debates. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And, you know, the politicians didn't want the scientists to have the, you know, they had their favourite scientists who would tell them and the media what they wanted to hear. And that was clear. They were cherry picked. And green. So, and, and you saw I'm those sure people on television every night mm. because they were prepared to just give the government message. It didn't matter whether it was right or wrong. It was wrong their time or, in the spotlight. They were getting the money. They were getting the attention. Yeah, they were getting the grants. <laughs> they, were, they were cleaning up. Yeah, fair. But so, it did enormous shout damage. Out to them. <laughs> Enor- <laughs> shout out to enormous them. damage, and um, it's sad. Uh, and again, it takes a long time to repair those reputations. And I think science was damaged enormously over the last three years. I think medic- medicine and public health has been massively damaged. Um, yeah, for and sure. and you know probably vaccines as as a public health measure has been immeasurably damaged by what's happened. We're going to have to rebuild all of that. Oh, you know, that's that going to be a lot of work. But yeah. so we, because we don't want people to abandon vaccines. I mean, I believe in them. I mean, I've seen them work. Um, you know, they're f- fantastic tools, like uh, for public health. Mm. Um, but so, so yeah, whatever people think about, you know, COVID vaccines and and particular vaccines amongst them. Don't think that you know all yeah. vaccines are bad because that that is that's wrong. Mm. They they're really great tools, but sometimes they aren't as good as we would have hoped. And um, some technologies again has early promise and doesn't always deliver. Um, and you know, and sometimes we get side effects that yeah weren't uh, you know expected, but when they happen, we have to accept them, analyze them, and and move on accordingly. Sounds like we needed the old adage, slow and steady wins the race. Well, that's what we're counting on. <laughs> Good. You know, yeah. Three and a half years in and counting and yeah. uh well, you know, not from a lack of trying from No, we still we still we're still hard at it and we still think we've got a few little irons in the fire that, that could actually, you know, make a difference. So yeah. um if not, we'll just go back to making flu vaccines or, you know. There's lots of other vaccines. We're doing a cancer vaccine trial at the moment. Oh, yeah? yeah. What kind of cancer? All cancer. Marty's got cancer. Yeah. So, Is it yeah. worth having a look at? Now? Well, we, we um, have what's called an autologous cancer vaccine, so we actually make it from the cancer. So they, they, I've heard of this. Yeah. Not as a vaccine, but I heard it as a chemo. Well, no, this isn't chemo. This is taking a piece of their, their cancer and actually making the vaccine out of it, and then they get the vaccine back as an injection. Is that done in Switzerland as well? 
that biggie dope uh band? look at different forms of it have been done over many many years but okay. um again How does that work <laughs> Well, it gets it stimulates your immune system to attack the cancer, just like uh, infectious disease vaccine stimulates your immune system to attack the virus. In this case, we're training it to attack the cancer. And does that look promising, or like does is look, it? Early? Yeah, I mean it's How very early? it's very early. I mean we've treated a lot of dogs and and mice. Um, yeah, okay. With cancer, but um, yeah, this is is eradicating or stopping it from growing, or like what's been happening? Stopping it, it growing. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, but so you an know, extender of life at this current stage. Yeah, so it it freezes the cancer, is it, what it appears like. You know, what, in, does that mean that it puts it in remission? Well, remission is normally where the the cancer totally goes disappears. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, um, so this is would be called a partial remission. Yeah. Um, in that the cancer goes into stasis. Um, which is unusual. Normally, cancer drugs either, um, you know, kill some of the cancer and shrink it, and then it it sort of escapes and mm. grows back even faster. Whereas, like what, a dry what we, ice and wart. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But with this, what we see is it just it it the yeah the tumor just stops. Yeah. Okay. Is it that a good thing? Doesn't go away, but it doesn't. Um, well, I mean, people. I mean. Um, you know, the idea is that they go back to a normal life, like even the dog owners just come back and say, oh, it's back, got its appetite back. It's, it's living. Yeah, like, like, you know, the fact that it has a cancer, I mean, you know, again, if, if the cancer's not growing and it's not active, the fact that it's still there isn't necessarily what's making the meal because what we see in the dogs is they, they, they you know, they're often lethargic and, you know, a dog with a lot of cancer and, then they have the vaccine and suddenly they're yeah, okay. running around and eating again. And you think, well, you know, the cancer's still there, yeah, it's, but it's not growing. So it's obviously gone into some sort of... Have you, th- have you seen doc- Dr. Sebi? He was no. this uh, nutritionist. He's died now, but he said that through diet and particularly having your body in an alkaline state, state that... um. You know, he could cure cancers and stuff like that. I haven't delved too deep into it, but I have seen a lot of videos come my come my way, kind of idolizing him. Mm. So I'm definitely interested in having a look at him. Um, but yeah, is do you think food? And have you heard the argument that you know cancer can't grow in an alkaline environment? Well, I, I've I've had friends with cancer who've you know tried all of these things. Unfortunately, they didn't um, work. Didn't you know? Or yeah. fasting. What about the idea of fasting and that if you do like seven to 30 day fast, it can like starve yeah. the cancer and your body goes, you know, and kills it itself. Like, yeah, look, I, I think the, there's two sides to cancer. Being healthy reduces risk of getting a cancer. That's yes. where you have your best opportunity to avoid cancer is, you know, to eat healthy mm. um, and, you know, be healthy. Once, once you've got, you know, um, well, your body's riddled with cancer. Um, you know that that's a very difficult situation to to come back from. You know, if if you had say an early cancer, just a localized cancer, and you had surgery, took it out, I'd say they're the people who should put everything into lifestyle, like to to reduce the risk of 
it coming back or, you know, because mm. there will probably be some cancer cells elsewhere in the body. And maybe in that situation you can mop it up. We're also thinking with our vaccine, maybe that's the, the, the situation where you could eradicate ah. the cancer, you know, is after that first surgery. Yeah, okay. You know what I mean? Where maybe 10% of people are going to get a cancer back in the next five years. But, you know, because then the, the immune system doesn't have to do very much. It's just probably going to have to find a few cell cancer cells and kill them. And that's probably a lot easier than if your whole body is riddled with masses of cancer. So, but yeah, so I think that, that you know, there's different stages of cancer, but, but, you know, once someone is very advanced, I mean, we have seen some miraculous um, situations with the vaccine, um, but equally we've had people who are on their deathbed and, you know, the, you could say, well, the vaccine hasn't had time to work or maybe it didn't. It, it, yeah. It wasn't going to work. Do you know what I mean? Um, hard to tell. But it's very hard to tell when people are at that very last death's door. Mm. Yeah, nice. And it's very hard to even expect the treatment to work at that stage. Do you know what I mean? Because they've, they've tried everything and everything's failed by them and their immune system presumably has also failed. Um, so I think, yeah, it, that, that's not a negative or a positive. What we have to look for is where's the right time in a cancer to test these types of treatments out. But my view is that the best time would actually be when someone's having their primary cancer taken out, when it may be curative, but maybe not. And yeah. this might just give them that added sort of insurance. Um, so, but yeah, so it's a lot of work to be done and cancer's not an easy area. So no. that will take 15, 20 years. Cause mm. it, but it, that's where the, uh, um, you know, emergency use comes into effect, right? Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing. I mean, obviously, um, you can use these these treatments un under you know clinical trials, um, and um, so you're still giving them treatment because you're not going to give a placebo in that yeah. situation normally. Um, so you're allowed to do that, but to to get it approved and on the market, obviously, you know, requires yeah. enormous time and and commitment and resources. Um, so you've, got, so you've got all the answers. But that doesn't stop you treating people in the meantime. Yeah, okay. But they just have to be part of a clinical trial. What do you think the best way to, like, prevent disease? Like, going, like, how do you live? Stay in, a normal body weight. I'm do, an endocrinologist. Yeah. I mean, the, that's okay. probably the single biggest factor in, in, in the Western world. Don't get fat. Don't get and fat. And don't get too skinny. Well, not too many people in danger of getting too skinny <laughs> in, our, in the Western world, in, yeah, in, yeah. in Africa and other places maybe. But, but no, once your BMI is over 25, um, your risk of every disease on the planet, mm. including cancer, um, goes through the roof. What do you think about like detoxes? Because I've seen things like uh, liver flushes where you have some enzymes and then you're essentially on the toilet for like a day or two. And you get out all the um the green uh like sludge that would turn into like gallbladder stones and stuff like that. You get all those out um every now and then. People do all sorts of detoxes, you know, whether it be fasting, mm. whether it be dry fasting or water fasting or juice mm. fasting for like three days or five days, seven days. Mm. What do you think about like all those um I guess home remedies, but like those alternative kind of holistic approaches. Yeah, look, I, I'm, I have an open mind. So, um, 
I think that uh, some of those things that are done, in, including for religious reasons, you know, the prolonged fasts, yeah, part of a lot of religious cult, yeah, I think had a medical basis. benefit and basis. Again, you know, the idea you can't eat pork, you know, in the Middle East was because, um, you know, the tapeworm in the pork. So it was easier to tell people not to eat it for religious reasons than to say, well, if you eat it, you'll get tapeworm. Obviously, they tried that and no one listened. So they made it a, a religious edict, you'll go to hell. Um, and suddenly everyone stopped eating it, um, solved the problem. So, so I think a lot of the things we do, we don't realise, are actually um, someone at some point in history has worked out there's a health benefit and have, have slipped it in there. So I, I think I do think um, fasting is is um, a very very uh, important tool, um, you know, because it does drop your weight down for a period of time. Even if you regain it, um, it stops you just continually adding to it. Um, and so I think that has beneficial effects. Um, and I think now the science is looking at how to fast. Like you know, should it be intermittent fasting or you know one day on, two days off, or, you know, should you do the whole, you know, a month of, you know, serious yeah, fasting. Ramadan so probably a whole range of those things together. Um, certainly when you, you fast or calorie restrict, um, you know, mice or, um, you know, worms, they live 30% longer. Wow, so, 30%. Yeah, 30%. What kind of fasting? Well, so that's calorie restricting. So it doesn't seem to matter how you do it so much. And again, they, you know, they, you can either just restrict how much food they have access to every day, mm -hmm. or you know, just not feed them every third day. And so, but what, it seems that it doesn't matter which of the methods um, that if you calorie restrict them, which again brings their body weight down, um, then they live thirty percent longer. So you know, for a human, that would be you know twenty. 25 years and, and and you look at 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 cultures that are skinny like japan they're some of the oldest living people on the planet mm. um so that's why i'm saying you know the single biggest thing people could do to prevent all manner of chronic disease including death from covid mm. is overweight people are much higher risk of death from covid yeah right just be, so, be so, slim. So, yeah, is be slim. Yeah. You know, that, that would have more impact on global health than any other intervention currently would be everyone losing three or four kilos on average. I'm trying to gain. Are you? Oh, you're gain. lucky. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to lose. Yeah, well, but, but it well, would, it, it, uh, <laughs> it, it, it would uh, as I say, have a, a massive impact. Yeah. No, fair enough. Well, look. Thank you so much for your time. I'm sure we could find a whole bunch of other things that I would like to learn about. But um, yeah, Watch Your Voyage is candid conversations with extraordinary people. And you're definitely an extraordinary person that has contributed a lot to this world. So I want to say thank you. Um, and look, you're, you're more than welcome to come on anytime you'd like. If you want to get the word out about you know, a new product that you have on the market and you want to talk about it, like please, uh, yeah. Just holler at me and is there anything else you'd like to say no i think i've said enough already um probably get me into terrible trouble but it's been a real pleasure and yeah i'd love to have other chats because i think there are a lot of things you've touched on you know outside of of vaccines that uh you know i think are important topics for 
people to openly discuss and explore. Um, uh, society can only benefit from open discussion. And the idea that we be, should be shutting down discussion, shutting down free speech, uh, is madness that that's sending us to the dark ages Look, those acma laws that's a whole nother discussion yeah, we can get yeah, into yeah. i'm sure you've got better there. speakers <laughs> uh, thank you very much mate